Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Well, not exactly. It's Edwin Eisendrath's show, but as you have been fairly warned all week, I, Tory Ryder, am here to keep the chair warm this holiday weekend for Edwin, who will be back next week. Fear not. How is your post-Thanksgiving going? I just uh, heard on the news uh, that they were they were having a conversation on the news about... Uh, how long you can eat your leftovers. Maybe maybe you've had this conversation yourselves. We're going to have sort of that conversation. Also, we're going to have a conversation about women being funny, getting permission to be funny, learning to be funny. We'll hear from the National Museum of Mexican Arts outgoing director, the voice of the CTA. You can think about the last protest you were at. Think about the last protest you attended. Did it do any good? And finally, uh, the fangirl club for President Joe Biden, my girlfriend CJ and I, because we're annoyed at how everybody has gone after Joe Biden. We just, you know, we think we think he needs a little love. So we'll be doing that today. And maybe we'll get your help doing that, too. That's what's in store for you. A little fun, a little politics, a little bit of culture. It's a Saturday. You know, you kind of want to take it easy. And uh, and absorb things. Speaking of absorbing things, the thing that made me think of this was I was looking at the New York Times recipes. I think it was, or maybe Wire Cutter yesterday. And if you've if you've ever looked at the New York Times recipes uh, or most new paper, newspapers recipes, you'll know that they sort of range from the "I can do this in time to get dinner on the table" to "Oh my lord, this is a full time job just to make this one meal." But the New York Times bestirred itself to do a best things to do with turkey leftovers recipe. And they came up with something that was just so revolting sounding. It was a homemade turkey hot pocket where they included, I am not kidding, this, cold, cold gravy, cheese, turkey, and, and pre-made pizza dough. Show of hands for anybody who wants to eat that. Not seeing anybody. Nope. Nobody. Paul Javari is sitting across the counter from me, shaking his head. Shaking his head. So I thought, okay, well, that can't be the worst thing that you can do with turkey leftovers. What else is out there? And thanks to MeTV, a Chicago franchise that I love, there is a list that they've compiled (laughs) of some of the most... They basically make you never want to make a turkey again, some of these recipes. And they heavily favor for some reason. Maybe it's just the era. There was a time when things that were fancy apparently needed to be put in gelatin. Gelatin ruled uh, second favorite ingredient in the 50s and 60s apparently was mayonnaise and somewhere in there mashed peas. So like, oh, and and pimento. Pimento was freaking everywhere. When was the last time? I mean, in the middle of a green olive, maybe. But when was the last time you bought a jar of pimentos? 
they even sell those anymore? So I, I will give you some of their uh, list of disgusto turkey leftovers. And, and I would love it if you would share uh, the worst dish somebody brought to your Thanksgiving dinner or what you're going to do with your leftovers with me by texting me at 773-763-WCPT. 773-763-9278. And in a weird way, it tells you a lot about the culture what people were eating in the 50s and 60s. I, I don't know how old you are, but there was a generation, uh, maybe you're from it, maybe your mother or grandmother were from it, where anything in a can was considered to be better. Anything in a can was superior. So even though now you or I would go over to the neighborhood vegetable market and we would buy corn on the cob, and, and scrape that if the recipe called for corn kernels or, or maybe worst case scenario, we'd go get some fresh, uh, frozen corn at a Trader Joe's. What, what you got? Oh my gosh. I'm going to make myself nauseous. What you got in the, in the early days. And I have to say, I just got the tail end of this, of the, the mommies who thought that the stuff in the can was better. You got, Canned corn, or God help you, even worse, creamed canned corn. Both of these items were heavily featuring sugar, and one of them had some kind of, I don't even know what it was, uh, cornstarch and sugar? I'm not sure, but um, it was mostly glop with some corn kernels kind of raising their frightened little yellow corn kernel heads periodically, trying to break through the surface of the creamy glop. So a lot of these recipes, um, and, and you, you may think this isn't political, but weirdly it is. This was the beginning of the idea that women should spend less time in the kitchen cooking from scratch. The idea that we've advanced to now where everybody cooks and you can cook quickly from scratch, that came later. But kudos to to one aspect of the domestic life of the 50s, 60s, 70s with the idea that women might be, they might have something else to do besides creaming corn. They might have something else to do besides making aspic out of animal hooves. And so we got Jello in a box. So some of these recipes are, are loathsome sounding, but also keep in mind what they tell you about the ways that women, it was always women, were expected to run the domestic uh, order of the house. The first one that they mentioned, don't say I haven't warned you, turkey and aspic. What is in it? Turkey, eggs, asparagus, spears, pimento strips, gelatin, chicken broth, onion, lemon juice, horseradish, and parsley. And this is supposed to be good because it's a it's a calorie saver. That one that if you can stand the thought of all that gelatin, I suppose not quite as loathsome. Here comes one. Maybe you should pull pull a little waste basket up next to you. Ready? Tangy creamed turkey. What's in it? Margarine, mushrooms, onion, turkey, green pepper, green peas from a can, mayonnaise, 
pimento, yogurt, and saffron rice. So you have enough time in the kitchen to make saffron rice, but apparently uh, the green peas are beyond you. And again, you know, no butter, margarine, and pimento. The pimento, as I said, this this is the thread that links it all together. The recipes of the 50s and 60s apparently were were connected by a long chain of pimento. Almost like if you took the pimento out of every green olive in the world and kind of stapled it together. That would be how much. Probably enough pimento to go around the world. Do you remember when that was always the, how much is that? It's enough to go around the world six or seven times, Tori. That was the big one. As if we really knew, like could envision like what it would take to go around the world at all. All right, here's the next one. Oh, you're going to love this. Ready? This is called tempting turkey. And because you wouldn't believe it, Mean TV puts a picture of the recipe up from its original source, which was, uh, I don't even know where they got this one originally. This is, oh my gosh. Okay, I'm really trying. Ready? Paul, if I get sick, help me. What's in it? Turkey? Cheese Whiz? Do you remember Cheese Whiz? <laughs> Turkey, Cheese Whiz, broccoli, and bread. And I don't even want to tell you that it was so vile looking that they didn't take a picture of it. They just drew it in orange and black. Just kind of... Well, yeah, you have to use orange. It's got cheese whiz in it for Pete's sakes. I'm not kidding you. These are things that people are expected. Here's one you'll also like. Although Lord knows how people, and they show it, by the way, with Ritz crackers, which were basically a food group in the 60s. They were their own food group. Everything was on Ritz crackers. Do you remember, um, if you're a, a scholar of history, um, this was a big thing during World War II, I read, where you were supposed to make, they called it mock apple pie. I don't know what was so hard to get about apples. I mean, it seemed to me like a lot of people had them in their backyard. But you were supposed to substitute four apples in mock apple pie, broken up Ritz crackers. I get that. I, I warned you, get that waste basket. Get it now. Here's the turkey cheese ball for you. Ready? Okay. And this, by the way, is me TV's uh, description of it. Nobody will be quite sure what they're eating exactly. I, I, I'll go with that. What's in it? Cream cheese, turkey, toasted almonds, mayonnaise. Always the mayonnaise. Chutney, as if anybody knew what chutney was at that time. Curry powder, parsley, and crackers. And the parsley, as far as I can tell, is what you roll the whole thing in after it's done. Uh, turkey mushroom salad. Again, pimento, the the unifying force here, turkey, mushrooms, celery, pimento stuffed olives, and here comes mayonnaise again, lemon juice, onion, and romaine lettuce. That one sounds like maybe you could eat it. Maybe. Maybe. Turkey layer loaf. Here we go again with the gelatin. Jellied cranberry juice, gelatin, turkey, celery, stuffed olives with pimento. Mayonnaise. Are you getting the drift here? And this is this is really so weird. Turkey fruit salad. It's not really a salad. It's a jello mold. 
What's in it? Turkey, pineapple, grapes, apple, walnuts, mayonnaise, gelatin, cranberry juice, peaches, cream cheese, celery, lemon juice. You're, you're starting to get the idea here of what people were up against back in the day. Uh, it was a hard one. I haven't even gone through all of it. And while we're on the subject of the gelatin as the leftover favorite thing, <laughs> did anybody bring a jello mold? Uh, and on Thursday, Jello mold, anyone? That is such a Midwestern thing. People come to visit from other parts of the country and someone shows up with a Jello mold. And if you, if you live, I would say west of the Rockies or east of Ohio, you look at this thing and you're like, what? What? It's, it's a dessert with, with with carrots and and cottage cheese in it? It's a what? Um, there were whole books of Jell-O molds. I used to beg my mother, by the way, to treat Jell-O like a salad. And my mother said, and I quote, that's nothing but sugar. My mother was rather smart. But for some reason, the citizens of the Midwest, upper and lower, were conditioned to believe that Jell-O somehow was a good base for a salad. I mean, you think that a couple of dozen years ago, um, it was a shame that we only used one kind of lettuce. Just remember that a generation before that, grandmothers were shredding iceberg lettuce and putting it in jello as a salad with big balls of cream cheese. <sighs> uh, it's enough to make you want to take up smoking, really. I mean, that sort of all went together. I, I would warrant you that in order, the reason, this is just my theory here, the reason that people could eat jello as a salad when it was filled with cream cheese and pieces of celery and God knows what else. I don't even, carrots, I remember. The reason you could do that was because you deadened your taste buds with smoking products. If you smoked enough, everything tasted the same. So if you wanted to eat a jello salad, the best way to do it. I would guess. Not that I ever did either. I've never made a jello salad and I am not a smoker, but I don't think it's a coincidence that those two things went out of favor at round about the same time, allegedly for health reasons on the, for sure health reasons on the smoking thing. But I don't know. Did somebody bring a jello salad to you? Anybody? Uh, I have a girlfriend visiting. She attended a Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, there was one kind of stray person. Someone who, you know, didn't have a place to go. And, you know, you always invite that person. And traditionally, what you bring if you're the stray person is a bouquet of flowers or a box of chocolates or a bottle of wine. But this person was really, you know, going to make themselves welcome. And so they brought a jello salad. And my friend from California had never seen such a thing. And I said, how did it go over? And she said, well, everybody took some. And that's the other thing about about jello salad in the Midwest. It's also unclear whether anybody in the Midwest actually liked jello salad or whether we were all just eating each other's jello salad to be polite. Unclear. I'm Tori Ryder. Your thoughts on Thanksgiving and leftovers and gelatin and the worst leftovers you were ever served. 
All of that. We've got a few minutes yet to digest it all. 773-763-WCPT, 773-763-9278. If you'd like to text, I'm not going to read your whole recipe, but I would like to know about some of the... Oh my God, I remember somebody put lima beans in a jello salad once. That's... I saw it. I wouldn't have believed it, but I saw it with my own two eyes. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820. You are listening to WCPT. It's Edwin Eisendrath show, and I'll betcha, I'll betcha a can of cream corn. You never heard Edwin talk about cans of cream corn on his show before. But hey, as they used to say to your kid in preschool, you get what you get, and you don't get upset. Tory Rider in for Edwin, by the way, if you want to follow me around online, you can do that. It's spelled T-U-R-I, Rider. Just put whatever you're looking for after my name. Uh, racy photos. No, none of those. Uh, Tory Rider podcast. You can find that. Tory Rider book. You can find that. It's called She Said What? Life on the Air. And uh, yes, there is also an audiobook just out days ago. Thanks to all of you who are, are texting about your Thanksgiving strange experience, food experiences. I love this response. These recipes are why we were all so much thinner back then. That and the smoking. I like to go back to the smoking again. Uh, not a popular thing to say, and I certainly don't advocate it. Absolutely not. I am not a smoker, but that was one thing people did in order to lose weight. They they smoked because it's a drug. Uh, Beth writes, to be fair, the whole industrial canned foods was partly in response to the previous era's wholesale food poisoning accidents. Huh. Another aspect was the whole convenience narrative, which coincided with the start of the push to reduce average household income so families would need both parents out working to maintain their standard of living. Unions, the backbone of the middle class, were on the cutting board uh, planning table long before Reagan pulled the initial trigger with the illegally breaking the air traffic controllers union. So much in that text. Let me say that um, the the household income uh um, push was partly from the outside and partly from the inside. Women had had the experience of working outside the home during the war and they'd still managed to keep their families going and they didn't want to be shoved back into the kitchen. And so, you know, if you could assemble a meal from canned corn or canned peas or canned green beans and some kind of piece of meat you stuck in the oven and, uh, you know, that this was the, remember, you'd go to the, the supermarket for the first time. They tell me I wasn't really around for this, for sure. But you, it had been, a, it, it would have been considered nuts at one point to go out and buy bread. That was a thing you could make. If you are um, a fan of antiques, uh, in, the, in the 40s, you didn't really have built-in cabinets. You had kitchen furniture. And the the Rolls-Royce of kitchen furniture was the Hoosier cabinet made right next door here in Indiana. And what did every Hoosier cabinet have? It had a big uh, flower bin, which you filled up. And that way, you could uh, open, up a, open up a spout and a half flour for all the things that you were expected to make. I have a Hoosier cabinet. I use it to store my my table linens, and I, th- this should tell you something about how the world has changed, and picnic wear, in case we are going somewhere. 
So, yeah, you, you don't. And, and to get more room in there, I took out the flour dispenser. It's not that we don't cook. It's not that you don't cook. You cook. You just, it, it's come around. We went from these really elaborate meals that women were expected to make at home or big pots of things. I have a friend who grew up on a farm, and he said basically you were just served giant pots of things because it was all about calories in, calories out. But the idea that it was sanitary, convenient, labor-saving, all of that, that came around only i would i would posit in response to this lovely text only in part because women were being told um that there wasn't enough money if they didn't uh, have two incomes and unions were on the cutting board I, this all started way before reagan this was this was it's better hygienic hygienically it's, it's nutritionally sound and most of all it is a convenience it is a labor saving tool and I would posit to you that women's labor had been considered like nothing. And after the war, people realized that women's labor could actually generate revenue or women wanted to labor to generate revenue that had a taste. And it was shortly before the uh, Betty Friedan feminist movement. So... For whatever reason, instead of having to boil beef bones to make your own gelatin, you could go down to the grocery store, buy Jello, and there you had it, the Jello salad. Beth also just texted to say, oh my God, canned lima beans and canned shrimp. My personal 1950s kryptonite. I could leave the house and my mom opened the shrimp because that was for bridge club only. But lima beans showed up at casserole at least once a week. <laughs> they did, didn't they? Yes, they did. In, in our house, the, the canned soup was a biggie. And I know for those of you who listened to me the day before Thanksgiving, you know that I didn't even know that mashed potatoes were actually just potatoes that you smashed. I thought they were flaky things you poured out of a box and added water to. That's what I thought. I learned. We all learned. And now we know that you can throw a bunch of vegetables in a pan and stir fry them, and it takes about 10 minutes. But then you didn't. And that, right there, if you look at the recipes, you can see women's liberation right there. And thank you to MeTV's website for reminding me that abso-freaking-lutely everything had mayonnaise a generation or two ago. In a moment, you're going to meet somebody who's professionally funny and maybe could teach you how to be professionally funny as well, or at least support you in your quest to be professionally funny if you are a woman. That's coming up in just a moment on WCPT. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. You are. It's Edwin Eisendrath's show. I'm Tory Ryder in for Edwin. It was intriguing to see this invitation come across my computer screen. It's an invitation to women to take a course to build confidence and skills for a career in stand-up comedy or to improve, and here now I'm reading for the web, from the website, simply to improve their communication skills. It's a course. Feminine comique. They have to update their 
website a little bit because it uh, mentions Lori Lightfoot. She's not the mayor anymore. But I am very excited to introduce you to an instructor at Feminine Comique. Uh, her name is Deanna Ortiz. Welcome to WCPT. This is kind of exciting, the idea that you have a place where women can learn to hone their comedic skills. Glad you're here. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. Well, good. Um, I, I'm going to set my table for you so you can see where I'm coming from on this. Uh, I Obviously, I do what I do, and some people think it's funny, and I read a book, and that's supposed to be funny. And when my book came out right before COVID, I thought it would be interesting to see what kind of live versions of my book could be created. And so I went to an open mic night or two. And at most of these open mics, Mm-hmm. I pretty much was disgusted. It was men talking about their body parts. And that was supposed yeah. to be. And I I honestly don't think there's a single new thing that a guy can say about his body parts. Um, no. And the parts of their body parts that are really funny, you just like, show me your body part, I'll laugh. Is that what you were going mm-hmm. for? Um, yeah. Because that's that's when body parts are really funny is when men are hoping they're not. Um <laughs> So so there was that. And then for a brief shining moment, there was a series at Volumes Book Cafe called You Joke mm-hmm. Like a Girl. Do you remember this? I sure do. Yeah. And and that was a beautiful thing. And so when mm-hmm. I saw your invitation, we can talk more about that. When I saw your invitation, I thought, you know what? This is needed, a place for women to be funny without having to wade through the bile of of men Mm -hmm. who want you to laugh at their particular private organ. So how did this come to be and uh, what what actually is involved for women who want to be funny on stage or in their work? Yeah, so um, Femcom and the classes at the Lincoln Lounge have been around for over 10 years. It started with um, a well-known comedian named Cameron Esposito, who is in LA now, but started in Chicago. And uh, she was looking for, she basically had the same experience that you had. There wasn't enough female representation. There wasn't like a safe space for women to practice and go up at open mics or like learn comedy because it did feel like such a boys club. Yeah. And one of the reasons was because all the women that were interested in doing stand up. We're going to open mics and having that same experience of not feeling welcome and just being like, what, why even, <laughs> what even are these jokes? Getting discouraged and leaving. Um, and so Cameron started these classes to kind of teach. Right now, the classes is for uh, female and non-binary people. So to teach people who are in minorities how to like, hey, this is a safe space and you can learn the basics. And then you just feel a little bit more ready, I guess, like more prepared to then go to open mics, you know, because there have been these spaces like You Joke Like a Girl, the Kate's comedy show was at the bookseller for years. I ran a show called Who Hot Comedy, which were all female ribbon, uh, all female run and booked and all that stuff, which is great. But also we deserve to have that spot at the, even if the open mic is so bad and awful, there should be a woman who can feel safe doing her stand-up at those bad open mics. Just well, like the guys. Yeah, it's going to be awful. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it mm-hmm. is, is going to be awful. But there are different mm-hmm. kinds of awful. 
And I do want totally. to say, in fairness to the male open mic world, it wasn't that in the brief few moments I was there before, I just thought, forget it. I got a microphone at 50,000 watts. I don't have to put up with this. Um, exactly. But um, and I'm lucky that way. But um it wasn't made to feel uncomfortable. You, you would just, if you if you listen to this, it was dis, it was disgusting and uncomfortable to think about what guys thought was funny. It, yeah. it was like having the dark. It was like looking at somebody's guts after they'd just eaten <laughs> dinner and like, okay, dinner was an hour ago and now it looks like this. And you, yeah. you don't want to see that. You, you just don't. So. The, the most important thing, too, is that it's just not funny. And so it's like just an unfunny thing after unfunny thing of like, that's the whole, you know, open mics. We're trying to figure stuff out, but just like the really, really unfunny stuff, it's unbearable to sit through. And I've been doing stand up for 11 years in Chicago and I've sat through many uh, awful open mic. But yeah, it's that and that feeling of discouragement while you're at that mic to be like, Man, this I, I have four minutes. I've been here for an hour and a half already, and I get four minutes on this stage. And when I go up there, they're probably not even going to listen to me, you know. So I think having the class makes a lot of people feel a little bit more comfortable, a little bit more prepared to then go to, you know, to share it with the open mics or the showcases. I loved what you said about as you sit in the audience and you stew about your four minutes, that's got to be one of the things you address in the class. Can you give me an overview of how the class is run? Someone signs up online and then what happens? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, it's a five week class, which culminates in a a grad show at the end. So you will have a big show at the end where uh, at the end of the class, everybody has five minutes of stand up, and it feels crazy on week one. Cause I'm like, in a couple of weeks, we're all going to have five minutes. And it, it, by the end of it, it's like, how did we do that? But the class starts out really slow. We do some writing um, projects and sharing with the class. It's very collaborative. And then we just slowly build each week of like, okay, week two, we're going to learn how to write a joke. We're going to break it down structure by like piece by piece and go over structure and how to find a punchline and all that stuff. Week three, you come with three minutes of stand up. Week four, you come with four. Week five, you come with five minutes. And then it's just a slow build. And the best part about the class for me is once the students are on stage performing, they do their time and then we all kind of workshop it together. So it's a little bit more like, you know, we're all punching up each other's jokes, which is definitely not the vibe that you're going to get in an open mic. You know, it's every man for themselves. But at, in the class, at least you have this community of people who are excited about stand-up, who are curious about stand-up, and who want to, you know, help everybody else create their set and be funny. Well, let me ask you about women getting excited about stand-up, because I'm wondering if the um, the show, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, has made women more excited about doing stand-up, or if they always were, they just never had a place. Because a lot of the stand-up that makes it to your, you know, comedy television screen, um, th- that's stuff that people have been working on for years, and, and you could mm-hmm. get excited about that. But if you show up at a at a comedy club... As a woman, you know, showing up there, it's kind of hard to get excited even about the people who are oftentimes being booked into those comedy clubs. What has made women more excited about stand-up, do you think? Yeah, I think Miss Maisel has, I mean, done a lot for people. And I think it's given them a lot more um, of like a peek behind the curtain as to what it 
could take to become successful in comedy and not just in stand-up in comedy in general like comedy writing or improv or sketch like just the whole world that is professional comedy um it's been that it's also been like the influx of streamers and specials that are on available to us at any time you know you can watch people like best selling or taylor tomlinson not only on Netflix and Hulu and HBO Max, but you can also see them on your phone, like whenever you want. So I think that has been just, uh, it's the social media aspect of stand up is exploding and giving so much, so many more eyes to people who you would never see like on your TV. So now uh, people can find great, these people. That is a great mm-hmm. observation. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, my, I have a kid who is really mm-hmm. interested in stand up and mm-hmm. I don't know, I haven't seen him lately, but I have to tell you, I saw him when he started. It's absolutely not funny. Um, yeah. Not funny. And, and of course, being the mother that I am, I sat him down and said, none of that was funny. And let me tell you why <laughs> it wasn't funny because I'm yeah. the world's worst mom and they would all <laughs> cheer fully admit that. Uh, in fact, I trained them to acknowledge me as the world's meanest mom. It's like a catechism. Who's the world's meanest mom? You are. You are. Very good. Now you can have dessert. But um, but the the uh, the phone, which you've just mentioned, is a place where I've seen comics I would never normally see. Uh, devout Muslim women doing comedy. There are several Orthodox Jewish women doing hilarious comedy that may not be uh, tailored to the broader universe, but mm-hmm. you know, for a subset of people, it's hilarious. So yeah. um, that that's a a great observation. Do people come through your class and they say, I don't want to perform at a comedy club. I want to create a comedy feed on TikTok or YouTube. Is that a thing women are doing after taking your class? Not really. I think those two kind of go hand in hand of I want to perform. And then also I want to post on social media because they kind of like, I, I could see how taking a stand up class would help like, your writing skills in terms of like, if you wanted to do character work, like uh, making funny videos on TikTok and stuff. But I think that if you're going to have a successful stand-up career, you have to have a big presence. You have to have a presence on Instagram. If you want to have a presence on Instagram, you got to be able to do it live because that's the next, I see this so often of like TikTokers who got famous over the pandemic who are then going on tour to comedy venues and trying to do stand-up. So it's like you've got to have both in your arsenal to succeed. What a, <laughs> that's, that's a what great I, observation, which makes me ask you, you remember we all watched the woman who did the Donald Trump How to Medical Um, And what became, and there are a lot of people who got famous on your phone or on your computer during the pandemic. Um, Did did most of them learn how to do it live? Did they come and take a class from you so they could learn how to do it live? Uh, Were they shocked Uh, to find out? I would have loved that. Yeah, wouldn't it have been great? Because some people, so are there some people where you think, okay, you've had your whole life and you've got five good minutes and now you're never going to have another five minutes. Do you, do you ever think that? Because I have a theory that everybody in the world thinks they can do talk radio and most everybody in the world could do three shows mm-hmm. and, and then it that gets is, harder. It's like, it's, that is such, such a good point. I think that every single standup has that experience where they're just like, well, I've pulled from all the stuff that I can write about from my life up until now. What am I going to write about now? And then comes the actual part of the work, which is writing 
and being diligent about turning over material. And that is the actual part of doing stand-up. That is the work, you know, because a lot of people are naturally funny and they come to the class and they say, I'm just going to get up there. I'm going to riff, which is a, it's virtually impossible because you see these people on your TV just hanging out and, you know, Couch, like riffing things off and you think it's not planned but it is planned and be, that's because they write all the time and because they're looking at the world and taking it for content and turning it over for stand-up um, which sounds crazy but it's no true. no no um, no not to me anyway <laughs> we have a motto in, yeah. in the business so the good ones make it look easy which is why everybody thinks that he or she yeah. or they can do talk radio it's like exactly what do you do you just put a, all my friends think that i'd be a great talk show host and i'm like well they're your friends they're supposed to find you interesting that's exactly their, that's their job <laughs> yeah and the people who come into are there people who come into your class who you think to yourself you Poor soul. No, um, I think not so much. I used to teach the co-ed version of the class, and I definitely had that thought in the co-ed version. But for Femcom, it's a lot more. It's just such a safe space, and it just kind of feels like we're all just wrapped in a little cocoon. And then at the end of it, I, I push my little birds out of the nest, and I send them to open mics and hope that they succeed. But it's like after you write that five minutes, that's when the real work starts, because you won't have this group of people giving you feedback. You won't have a, a teacher telling you, try this, try that, bring back that other thing. And you have to be diligent about sitting down and writing whatever that looks like for you. Do people come back for a touch-up course after they've, after you've launched them? Do people come back and say, you know, I also, I need to work more on this. I'd like to take the class again, or is there a level two or intermediate? What do you have after the begin class? For a long time, we didn't have a level two because we felt like, well, you've you've gotten the basics and, you know, go figure it out. But we do have a level two now called the punch-up class, which is a lot more high intensity. Um, we learn about hosting and the actual, like, behind the workings of the stand-up comedy business. And we work on, like, actual physicality movements and finding your voice. And it's a lot more, like, <laughs> introspective work, I'll say. <laughs> and they, the, the students need to come with three new minutes of material every week. And they also have to go to an open mic and perform every single week. So it's basically the first class on like hyperdrive. And uh, it's, it's, it's for people who are like very seriously wanting to do stand up because we do get a lot of people in, in the week one or the, the level one class who just want to cross something off their list or they've always wanted to try it. And they're not really like extra serious about it, but level two are for the people that's like, you want to do this, let's go. Wow. I love that. So you can sort of try it on. Like, so level one is like the try on room and level totally. two is like the alterations booth. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got I've it. I've been teaching the class for such a long time. I've gotten a lot of lawyers who want to just like come in and like learn how to, you know, be more confident on people that are in business that come and they just want like this extra skill just to have without any interest in actually performing. They'll do the grad show. They get a clip. It's a super fun experience, but then they just take what they learned and then put it into their real life, not pursue stand up. Well, now that that is tantalizing what you've just said, because. Um, a lot of women are told that to be businesslike, they're not allowed to be funny. Whereas mm-hmm. men are taught that to succeed in business, you got to be not only great at your job, but, you know, f- funny at the dinner, at, at the big company yeah. dinner. And so women 
from it sounds like women perhaps who were not given permission to be funny have started to figure out that it doesn't serve them well to be serious and businessy yeah. all the time. Is that what you're yeah. seeing? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And people that are just like, you know, they're in business and it's so, you know, stuffy and corporate and management, blah, 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 to then have an outlet where you can can be a little silly or even have the confidence to, hey, if I can do stand-up comedy and get in front of a room of people and make them laugh, I can talk to anybody in a at a holiday party. I can walk into any room full filled with a bunch of people and know that I can talk to somebody. It's just not even the aspect of I can I can be funny, but like I am confident now. It's uh it's it's really great to see. Well, that was the one thing that I was surprised that the kid came back and told me was that he he was he learned something when he flopped, and I thought, oh, good, you know, that's useful to know. I wonder yeah. sometimes, though, I mean, do you tell people who want to do this in business that there mm-hmm. are certain rules that are different about doing, you know, being funny in in work? Um, I'll just I'm going to tell you where this is coming from. There, there's a there's a piece of my book where I worked for a guy who thought that he could do all the talk show host jobs better than we could and mine in particular. And when he called me into his office at some point to discipline me for something, um, he began by telling me that that he was funny. And as proof, <laughs> he pointed to a rubber chicken on his business office credenza. And he said, and I quote, I brought that chicken to the company picnic last year and that was funny and i thought (laughs) you know um probably a litmus test for what's funny uh would be best run in front of a room of people whose salaries you are not paying um oh yeah so when you tell people like be careful when you're being funny in business i mean how do you caution people or do you yeah um i think we do talk about like punching up versus punching down and things to stay away from when we're writing things for class. I also definitely teach narrative stand-up. So it's more of like the stories from your own life and talking about your experience, which is always more interesting to me than someone being like, did you see this in the news or something like that? Um, So I think yes and no. I mean, I definitely don't tailor the class to like if one person is like, I'm doing this for business, but it is more focusing on you and what it's funny to you and bringing that to the class as opposed to, you know, trying to appease the whole company and making sure that, you know, you're not offending someone from HR. Yeah. Well, it's easy to do those people in (laughs) HR. They're not known for their senses of humor. They're in HR. They weren't hired for that. So, Okay, let me ask you. But we do also in the class, like, talk about, like, if something doesn't hit during the class and nobody laughs at it, we can go through and be like, okay, so why didn't this work? And is there a way to make it funny? So I think that that's another thing, too, that people are like, I'm going to bomb. But everyone will bomb. That's just part of stand up. But in the class, we can break it down and say, oh, we can maybe save this for later and bring something else up that is funnier. So I think that editing also helps people as well. And, And it's positive. So that's good. You give people oh, yeah. a, a, a positive direction which to take it. When I was going around to some of the women's comedy nights, mostly at, at volumes, because that was the one I could find, um, mm-hmm. it was interesting to see that there, I, that there were groups of women who seemed to feel that they should just be a female version of the guy disgusting body part narrative. Mm-hmm. And then there were women who found things that were uniquely actually funny about being female 
or or mm-hmm. or binary or presenting in a more feminine quintessentially feminine way because there were some people mm-hmm. who were kind of on the spectrum of gender there and then mm-hmm. there were people who just were funny without ever drawing attention to the fact that they were female um yeah. do you address this you know the people who were sad to me were the people who felt like, you know what, the guys are going to talk about their body part. Well, I'm just going to talk about my body part. And I remember yeah. that back in the day, the early days of Amy Schumer, she seemed to be doing that. But she mm-hmm. grew and she doesn't do that anymore. Are women, do you think as a group, women were told that the way we should do things was to do it just like the men and then it changed? Or is that just a natural trajectory that women say, you know what, I'm sick of talking about my body parts. I'm going to do a different thing. Yeah, I think that for if I see somebody that's like really copying the, the, the style of the raunchy guy stand up, I think it almost to me reads as like, I'm a response. Like I'm leaning into this, you know, I'm taking, if you can do this, I can do this. And this is what comedy is. But for me, I just think that I tell all my students, like, what do you want to talk about? Is it your body parts? Go for it. If you want to do that and you think it's going to be funny, bring it to class. Is it, do you want to talk about this one trip that you went on in Halloween of, you know, 2013, bring that. If you're excited about it and you think it's funny, that's, what's going to shine through, you know? And if I see someone on stage doing something that I can just tell that they're not excited about, but they're doing it because they think that's what comedy is. You know, a lot of people will come to the class and do some blue material because they think that that's what they need to do, or they think they need to have a political joke. They think they need to have a, you know, a dirty, raunchy joke. And you just don't have to, like we said before, we're, seeing all of this, these people on social media talk about whatever they want and all of their experiences. And that's what's funny to them. So that is like my biggest thing for my students. Like if you want to talk, if you want to do blue comedy, you can, if that's what you want to do and not just what you think that that's what you should be doing. I love that because it's like, it's the same with talk radio in a way, which is if you don't care about it, it's very hard to make anybody else care about it. If you're, if you're doing, and now another topic manufactured for talk radio, it bores you, it bores them, it bores the planes flying uh, overhead, it bores everything. So, (laughs) um, let's talk a little bit about how people can participate in the class and when it meets and how it meets and talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, FemCom is at the Lincoln Lodge. Uh, the Lincoln Lodge is uh, on Milwaukee and Armitage. We're starting registration for our New Year classes. So if it's like something you wanted to put on your bucket list and get a New Year's resolution, try stand-up. It's honestly the perfect time. Um, it's a five-week class, and then the last week is the grad show. And we have two classes that will start in the new year. Uh, January 2nd and February 26th and they run in you know a six-week course so if like Tuesdays or Mondays don't work for you we'll probably have Wednesdays and Thursdays coming up later like it's it's always the same night of the week it's a two-hour class um pretty you know low commitment when when you look at the other stand-up classes available a lot of them are very long and three four hours long um and then the punch-up class is for people who have already done stand-up before um, or people who have already taken a stand-up class somewhere. And we're running those again so at the beginning of the new year. How, how many folks are teaching and how many people are typically in a class? Yeah. 
Um, so right now, the FemCom teachers are me and Audrey Jonas, another great stand-up in Chicago. Um, a sold-out class is 10 students. Um, we also do have scholarships available for uh, minorities and people of color if you want to apply for the scholarship. It's like we want to make sure that anybody who wants to try stand-up gets to try stand-up. It's all at the Lincoln Lodge website. Um, yeah, and it's always... Uh, and and you're oh, getting really you're getting funding or you did get funding for from the city arts uh, um, D case, which is the Department of I don't even know what it all stands for in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Are you still being funded by the city? Uh, are you running? Is it a nonprofit? Is it how does how's that set up? Yeah. The Lincoln Lodge is a nonprofit. Um, so right now, I don't think we're getting funding anymore from the city, um, but we do. We we did a. Um, a like a huge festival, all the money going back to the Lincoln Lodge a couple months ago. So that also helps keep our classes affordable and low pricing. Nice. Um, yeah. So we're, it's a nonprofit. We've always been, you know, <laughs> the Lincoln Lodge is, <laughs> we're scrappy. So we're always trying to find something to help us, you know, stay afloat and have people come in and have a fun time. Bake sale. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I got it. So tell me, yeah, crammed cream of corn sale. It's Thanksgiving leftovers and aspect sale, jello mold sale. I can think of some ways. What are some of the um, subjects that women have brought to you that they've developed really good comedy around that you thought were really unlikely? Yeah. Okay. The first thing that comes to mind is this girl. She was so funny. And she um, she had a whole five-minute set about one phrase that she heard someone say at the art museum. So her whole five minutes was, I went to the art museum. I heard someone say, Brad bought a building. And she just delved into this whole, like, five-minute speech about who's Brad bought a building and every single thing. We dissected that to its bare bones. It was hilarious. And it's just, it could be something like that of something crazy that you heard someone say the other day or someone who is like, I was married for, you know, X amount of years and now I'm divorced and I'm getting back out into the dating game. And here's what it's like to be dating at 60. Like it's so the, the stories that people are sharing are across the board. Like could not, it's never the same in every class. It's never the same. I have to say women do come up with, with some really, if you go to an open mic night, I think it's like grading on a curve. There'll be like three or four stinkaroonies and then a lot of people in the middle. And then maybe if you're lucky, one or two who are, you know, bound for MIT version of comics. And I heard a woman do, I really almost slid out of my chair and stuff came out my nose. She was reading her diary that she found from when she was in fourth grade and commenting on her diary from fourth grade. And I, yeah. I about, I really, it was, it was wonderful. So I think what we've gotten from talking to you today is that if you want to try it, you should try it. Absolutely. All right. I, I'm going to just give the website again. It's the lincolnlodge.org, right? Is where they can find dot com. you. Dot com. Sorry. And it's feminine comique if you yeah. with that Frenchy sort of spelling. So if you want to find uh, Ms. Ortiz or her cohort, go Google feminine comique and then call me up and make me laugh. Deanna, thank you so much. I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much for having me. I had a blast. It was fun. We are WCPT. It's Edwin Eisendrath's show. I'm Tori Ryder. In for Edwin Moore in a minute. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820. 
Four minutes after two o'clock, it is Edwin Eisendrath show. I am Tori with you, Ryder, in for Edwin Eisendrath. If you have been to the National Museum of Mexican Art, you know what a treasure it is. In a moment, you're going to meet one of the founders who is retiring, deservedly so, after almost 40 years uh, running the joint. Uh, so you're going to meet him in just a second. Also coming up, who is that person behind the CTA who says, next stop, Lawrence. Lawrence, next stop. We had a bus that used to go by our house that was so loud you could hear it a block away. So I got to know his voice very well. Also, the last protest you went to, we're going to talk about that. And uh, we're going to check in with my girlfriend, CJ, as the unofficial Biden fangirl club. But right now, I would like you to meet Mr. Tortolero. He is, as mentioned, the president of the National Museum of Mexican Art. He was part of the team of educators who founded it, and it has it has become a treasure. It has become a jewel. It has become a focal point of all things Mexican, Mexican-American here in Chicago. Welcome, Mr. Tortolero. So good to have you. Thank you very much. Glad to be on your program. Um, tell me just a little bit about how you came to found the museum, how it started, what it was like when it started, and a little bit of its life trajectory. I was teaching at Bowen High School on the southeast side, almost in Indiana, where the steamers are at. I had four friends and my uh, sister. We all were related in some way to Bowen High School, whether we thought in daytime there or at night school. And I asked them, hey, let's start a museum. Uh, I think the majority of them felt, we're going to have some fun, do some programming. But I always said, we're going to do a museum. And what we have now is exactly what I wanted us to do. I didn't envision a storefront. No, no, no. I wanted what we have today. Well, it's interesting that you would say that because there are some museums that have started in Chicago and they they got up, as they would say, where where I come from in Kansas, a little bit above their raisin. They ended up with big buildings and not a good way to get people into them. But you, you how many folks uh, a month come through the National Museum of Mexican Art? And, oh. and uh, talk a little bit about some of the things that they see and hear when they come. It depends which month. The fall is our day to day season, which is happening right now. So it's the busiest time of the year. Uh, we're, uh, we're on track to about 165,000 people this year. Uh, we're a free museum. And I always say, and I can't say it enough, but frankly, everybody else will thought, you know, what? You have the museum in Pilsen, a working class neighborhood. You want to do an art museum and you want to make it free? It ain't going to work. And guess what? They were wrong, wrong, wrong. Yeah, I bet they were uh, very surprised to see how well you made it work. I know that we've had, uh, you had a music series that was just delicious. We had one of your artists um, interviewed on the show some months ago. Uh, You really make a point of including all the arts. Was that um, part of your original vision? What, What did you imagine people would see and learn when they came well, remember, we were founded in 82. We opened our doors in 87. So for five years, we had no home. Mm-hmm. So we actually did more performing arts than anything else. My dream was to change what a museum is, the concept of what a museum is, the idea of what a museum is. 
And I think we've changed it. A museum is not a building. It's a concept. It's an idea. So one can do performing arts. One can do events downtown. One can do events wherever they want to. And I think museums are stuck. I'm in a building, and this is what I do all my programming. I don't think so. Plus, we do a lot of after-school events with our young people. That's important to us. So I think we change the concept of what a museum is. I really believe we have. How- uh, when the people when people come through the museum, you mentioned students, uh, classrooms. When people come through the museum, are they mostly uh, people of Mexican heritage, or are you serving a diverse community of people to bring that art beyond the Mexican rooted community of Chicago, which is huge? Okay, the, uh, the goal of our of our institution was to create a home where we could present conserve the culture, you know, of you know, New York community. But I always thought it was also important to have non-Mexican come visit. You know, I'm a former history teacher, and I can tell the history materials were awful for being, you know, and I always have fun saying the first cowboy wasn't John Wayne, it was Juan Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> True enough. Uh, that's how the horses <laughs> got here in the first place, I am told. Yeah. So, so we have to change the whole concept of... of um, what the museum can do. And from, from the very beginning, half of our tenants has been Mexicano, half of our tenants have been not from our community. We always want to do that. You know, people say, how do you get a diverse audience? I said, it's not hard. You have to want to do it. That's step number one. You shouldn't be forced into this, you know, some good thing, you know, I have to do this, you know, checklist kind of stuff. No, you do it because you want to do it. Well, I think people pick up on your enthusiasm that the museum is there because the people who created it are so excited about it. Um, and, and of course, the world probably knows by now, but if not, let's remind them, Mexico is not just monocultural. There are lots of different cultures that are present there, and then they come here in various different forms. What are some of the different particular cultures that you represent uh, under the large banner of Mexican art? Okay, there are over 60 groups in Mexico, indigenous groups, who speak uh, their own language. I am right now talking to you from Valladolid, which is in the Yucatan, about two hours away from Cancun. And here in this town, Yucatan Maya is is spoken everywhere. And so we are a very diverse community. So I think that's very, very important. And preserving, you know, the culture of all these groups, showcasing it, highlighting it, showing the world how great these cultures were. That's good. That's always been super important. So, so Mexico is a multicultural uh, city. Also, uh, like a month ago, I believe, uh, there was a study that came out and said one of every five persons in Chicago identify themselves as Mexican. One so out of five? One out of five? It just came out in Chicago. Yep, it came wow. out a few weeks ago. That's, yeah. and, you know, that's there's, huge. There's, there's, there's 1.5 million of us in Chicago land area. We are the largest group of color now in the country I, all I, by ourselves. That does not and, surprise and me. People don't know. I mean, after all, you are our, our neighbors, and so uh, th- th- one would expect a flow back and forth and uh, cross-pollination, if you would. Um, when, when you... Um, 
when you see kids coming through who may be two generations away from having had or three generations away or more from, from their Mexican roots, uh, what's some of the feedback you get when they see the, the diverse and rich elements of the culture that they, their family came from? You know, one of the things I really love, and I'm in the galleries a lot. I love being downstairs in the gallery, not in my office. There's nothing going on in my office. I like being downstairs in the galleries. And I can tell one of my favorite things when I see a grandfather or a grandmother with their grandchildren, and they point to a map, right? And they say, here's where we're from. Here's where I was born. Here's, you know, this is where you guys all come from. And the kids, they look at their grandparents like in awe, like, wow. Yeah. Look what he knows. Well, That's I, what you want. You want to create that bond. It's important. Yes. Well, not just that they're from there, but look, there's a whole museum about the place where you come from. Look at this. So, yeah, you know, yes. I'll tell you a great story. I'll tell you a great story. This happened right before COVID, right before COVID. And I'm walking from the back and I'm coming up and there's this father with his son. The son's about nine years old. They're speaking in Spanish. And the father gives the son a dollar bill to put the donation box. We're free, but there are donation boxes, right? Sure. And, uh, it's, and the son tells the father in Spanish, why am I putting the dollar in? I thought you said the museum's free. And the father says, yes, we want to keep it free. Aww. He gets it. <laughs> he gets it. When people is... say, why are you free? I'll say, don't you understand? Don't you get it? Yeah. The arts are for everybody. They should, that's the problem the art world. It's really not for everybody. It should be for everybody. That's true. And if you can give, then you do give. So let's talk about that. You've right. obviously built some bridges to the um, Mexican-American power elite and possibly, I don't know, uh, folks who are still in Mexico. Who has been uh, financially supporting the museum and what do they say about it when they give? No, when we say elite, I think that we reach out to reach all Mexicans. All Mexicans come to the museum. Yes. Um, uh, no, I think the, the reality is several things. One is that, you know, one of the things we always articulate when we're fundraising is we have a great culture, a magnificent culture, one of the world's best cultures right here in Chicago. And, you know, you know, we're showcasing it. We're free. I think that's very important. And we do quality work. I think that's very, very important. So we emphasize all things. And we have so many of us in, in, in Chicago, for God's sake, in the country. You know, if I own, you know, a business, an own large corporation, I would pay attention to the size of my community. and realize, my God, what are we doing trying to reach that community? All corporations are trying to find ways to reach them. Yes. And supporting institutions like us is a way for them to do something positive. And also, one of the things about us, and this is being honest, most institutions like us only get there in their own community or they become, you know, your tourist traps. We get everybody coming to our institution. Let, That's important, too. Let me ask you if you are uh, now reaching out and supporting artists, Mexican-American, Mexican artists, as they do their work. Are you, uh, do you have grants that you give to artists who are working in the community and the culture? Can I tell you something? Artists treat us like we're a foundation. I can't tell my artists, hey, I got a show in Canada, and you know, I need some help. I mean, can you help me? And we try to help them like we're a foundation. We can't help everybody. But you know, we've had artists have shows all over the world, France, South America, Central America. 
Anyway, I just came back with a people group that went to the Dominican Republic that we helped. So we are a different model. We, you know, we are the museum that that your mom and pop knew about. We're a different model here, and I hope people become more models like us. It's important because we're doing a program now in Mexico where we're bringing artists from Chiapas, which is a poor state in Mexico, to the United States, and we help them get the you know um, 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 the visas, things like that. So, so we do a lot of things that humans don't regularly do. That is but lovely. The is always important, and we have a gallery in our museum just for Chicago artists, which is unique. That is cool. Let's talk about that bricks and mortar. So you started without a museum uh, building for several years. Let's talk a about PO your, box. your a PO box. <laughs> a PO box. Kind of hard to fit a lot of art into a PO box. It, uh, it was very hard. It was very hard. Very hard. And 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 if someone is playing, the accordion will not fit into the PO box. So tell no. me uh, how you came to put together this bricks and mortar building that it holds so much and is so uh, so much a feature of the of the Pilsen community now. Well, you know, uh, I thought the group felt that the museum had to be in Pilsen. Pilsen is not the oldest community in Chicago. It's not the largest community, you know, from, from, from my community. But it's historically been a place of social activism. And I thought that's something museum has to be. We have to be an institution for social change. We just can't be a place that just collects objects. And way more than that. So we wanted to be in, in Pilsen because it's with social activism. I thought that was very, very important. Social justice, uh, you know, framework was very, very important. So we knew it had to be in Pilsen. That was very, very important to us. And and how did you come to secure the, the property and the design of it? And, and who, who was your, did you hire oh, well, a Mexican well, architect, a Mexican-American architect? Um, yes. Yeah, yeah. well, let me tell you something. So I forget. Uh, um, we hired an architect. The name is Adrian Rosano since he's passed away. Um, um, and to us, we... We, you know, we do have to be in Pilsen, and we, there was this boat craft shop. That's what it was, the boat craft shop. There was 30 white men. I'm not lying. There was one person from our community. Those are the time was probably huh. 98%, you know, I'm a, you know um, um, a Mexican. And there was one person from our community. So, you know, we want to talk to Bart Board. Oh, these boat people got to leave. Huh. <laughs> we can do a lot more with this space. And, and they were not bad individuals, they didn't be wrong, but they were just playing around with boats on taxpayers' time. And they were about 25 or 30, and that was it. If there was that many. Wow. So we went and access the space, and we got it, and they moved in some other place in the city. Well, good. There should be a locus for this activity. Tell me, um, if, if you would, you mentioned that the museum has been a, a center of social justice activity, activism. What are some of the causes that you've organized around uh, with the focal, with the base being at the National Mexican Museum? Okay, immigration is very important to us. Super important to us, immigration. Uh, obviously, we're pro-immigration, but the culture should be pro-immigration. That's what the U.S. is all about, for God's sake. Yes. You know, people lost their sense of history here. And, you know, um, we've had events for, you know, the Dreamers, a lot of events. We do a lot of health things. We do a lot of things with the LGBTQ community. We do a lot of things with that. In fact, I'll tell you a great story. Um, a woman came to us. 
and and she was doing work with um, you know a, a senior woman in our community, and she brought over two hundred women, all, you know, all fifty years and above, all Spanish, um, Latino, you know, um, dominant language, to the museum, in which they were going to show the woman how to check for uh, um, uh, uh, tumors. Breast cancer. Breast, right? Are you thinking breast cancer yeah, awareness? Breast cancer. Got it. Yeah. Oh, interesting. And, and, and believe it or not, not one of these women, not one ever had a mammogram before. Oh, wow. Not one. And this is not our event. People come and do events at our space and know they're going to use the space. Why not? You have an the term that's empty. Let people use it, for God's sake. So what's funny, I went to the, uh, uh, the American Lions Museum conference a few weeks later, the people heard about this because, you know, there was some press about it. And these guys are telling me, you don't act the way a museum does. And I go, thank you. I mean, thank you much because I'm not trying to be like you. I didn't try to insult me. I don't want to be like you. Yeah, I'm and trying to imagine. Like, I, have to do? I, I just had this it's vision of, like, the, the Art Institute doing a massive breast screening event. I, I can't imagine well, that. It would be. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, would be. You know, I'm being, you know, I'm being, I'm being attacked by five people. You know, I'm a bad human being. I want to save people's lives. And, you know, if there's 200 women in that room and not one of them had a mammogram before, and chances are one, two, three, four, maybe five of them had tumors, yeah. had lumps. Yeah, those are the numbers. So they were trying to save people's lives, and I'm a bad guy. You have an auditorium that's something that people use it. So we've had all kind of events there, but we want to be, I always say, we want to be a part of the, of, of, of the community, not a part from the community. A part, not a part from. And so... You know, these questions from, 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 I mean, these comments I get from my peers, I think are ridiculous. They really are. <laughs> so wouldn't that be great if the big museums did do an event like that? Wouldn't that be fantastic? It would be. Why not do those things Why like not that? do those Come things? On. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit. Um, I, I understand there's been a food element introduced to the museum. Is that correct? There, there's been some cuisine. A what element? Yes. Tell me more. Oh, well, yeah, we've done food. We've done so many food events. <laughs> They're always popular. You know, we do our data death ball that's done by our associate board, our young people's ball. And they get all these restaurants that come in. And the food's amazing. We had a lot of amazing events with food at the museum. So, you know, food, you know, what do you want to look at the main kind of food? It's everywhere in this country. Well, you know, the food is the culture. Like the yeah. It, but, you know, you know, forget about Taco Tuesdays. We have Taco Mondays, Taco Wednesdays, Taco Tuesdays. <laughs> <laughs> Our food everywhere in the city now. It is kind of interesting to see uh, in my neighborhood, there's a Oaxacan restaurant that is... Oh, Oaxacan food's amazing. It is. And we, we've been going there for years. And all of a sudden, the New York Times discovers it. I'm like, oh, look at that. Our oh, corner, know. corner restaurant. And all of a sudden... <laughs> but I think that... I don't think it's an accident that your museum is growing and making people aware of the various cultures that are here in all of the ways that they express uh, themselves. So let me ask you, as we head into the holiday season and you start to think about your retirement, uh, we had somebody mention that a great place to do shopping for the season was at your museum. What have you got for people to buy at the museum? What's the store like? 
Well, as we're talking right now, we're having our holiday, you know, you know, Mercado. Uh, it started on Friday, it's today, and tomorrow. We have stuff from all over the country of Mexico, from across the United States, done by artists. There's other ways to support the artists. There's all kinds of ways to put an artist besides giving them an exhibition. There are a lot of ways to uh, help the artists. And so, yeah, a lot of beautiful things to buy. I forgot which, um, there was some travel magazine that named us one of the top 10 museum gift shops in the U.S., and I think we are. We have an amazing, amazing gift shop. And it makes a profit, which is important because it's important to show funders that you just don't want asking them for money. You can do everything possible to raise funds on your own. That's a positive thing to do as well. Yeah, that's a good lesson uh, for so other important. people who want to run nonprofits is people are more willing to support you when they see what you're doing to support yourself. Um, talk about exactly. some of the types of art that people could find there, perhaps for a holiday gift or a birthday gift or a just-because-I-want-it gift, what media are represented there? Oh, you know, Christmas gifts, obviously, a lot of Christmas stuff. Oh, from cards to wood objects to prints, small paintings, ceramics, a lot of nice ceramics, uh, a variety of things. And it's only just from, from one part of Mexico, it's all over Mexico, and also from the United States, and there are from Chicago. We have some of the material as well who do, you know, stuff. You know, we do a lot of Mercados, uh, sales for you know, entrepreneurs in our community. We have about three events a year where they come and they sell their stuff. And they keep all the profits. We let them keep all the profits. I love that model. So as you move towards your retirement, what do you imagine that you will be doing? It's been almost 40 years. You made this thing a a going concern, and it's known throughout the museum world, and it's a a valued place in Chicago. What's next for you as you retire? Well, you know, I tell people three things. One, I want to consult. Two, uh, I want to write. I want to write a history museum. I want to write some other things, too. And three, I want to play with my two-year, five-month-old grandson, who's a treasure. I want to be able to spend more time with him. And, you know, right now the perfect time to leave. You know, Mackenzie, uh, Scott, she gave us $8 million. She just dropped $8 on us. The Ford Foundation dropped $3.6 The museum's in the best shape ever. You know, you know, I'm a sports freak, and there are too many baseball players who are playing way past their prime. <laughs> you should leave when everything's at the top of the game, and right now is the perfect time to leave. And I am 100% sure that whoever comes after me will expand on what we've done and will take it to even a higher level. So I'm, you know, I'm actually looking forward to who takes over after me and wish that individual as much success as possible. And so I'm very, very excited. It, I'm you know, kind of it, excited great at the idea of you taking your grandchild there. That's That's got to be something you're looking forward to as well. Oh, well, he's been, he's been already. He's been. It's, it's important that, you know, um, that I leave now because I think the museum's in great shape now. And that's... so I think, you know, you know, we have a great friend. We have a great staff. We have a great board. And so the best is yet to come, and that excites me a lot. You know, it's not about Carlos Tortolero. It's about the Mexican culture. That's always first and foremost. To me, it's something very uh, spiritual, holy, 
uh, you know, culture maker. And I want to promote it as much as I can. Well, and I want to continue hosting I, I think that that's events. the best way to, to say it, is something special and, and holy. And I think that that's a good place to leave it. Thank you so much for all the work you've done. I'm glad you could join us during your travels. I wish you a safe, uh, safe trip, safe return, and much great art and culture. You've been listening to Carlos Totolero. He is the retiring director of the museum, uh, National Museum of Mexican Art here in Chicago. You're listening to WCPT, the Edwin Eisendrath Show. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820. Live local and progressive WCPT, Chicago's Progressive Talk. It's the Edwin Eisendrath Show. I am Tory Ryder in for Edwin. You know, we've heard a lot of talk about trouble on Chicago's transit, uh, the need to improve service, the need to improve cleanliness, the need to take the red line and get it somehow out of the the clutches of the uh, population who've decided that it makes a nice rolling hotel. Uh, but nobody complains, as far as I can tell, ever about the voices that the voice, the voice that you hear on the transit speakers. Unless, of course, something's gone horribly wrong and you're hearing that that just means something's gone wrong. But when things go right, you hear Lee Crooks. Welcome, Lee Crooks, to WCPT. Thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. I, I hear that you uh, were recently, your voice was recently under the weather. but It was really under the weather, yeah, bad. And now you have it back again. You're the voice of the CTA. I, yes, I am. So even though many of the folks listening have never met you, somehow they'll feel like they know you. Um, do people <laughs> come up to you all the time and say, wait, 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 what did you say? I know you. I've had a couple people say that, uh, mostly in recording sessions for other projects. They've, I'll be doing something, a commercial or an industrial narration, and they'll go, boy, your voice sounds really familiar, and, and I know where they're going with it. And so I say, do you happen to ride the trains? Uh, yeah. What's your stop? Fullerton. And then I'll just go, this is Fullerton. And <laughs> <laughs> it's fun watching the light turn on in their eyes. And, oh, I, now I know who this guy is. Ah, uh, yes. I had that at a, in a city where I used to live. People, because uh, I was on the air, but if they didn't recognize me from there... They would say, no, 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 I don't listen to talk radio. And, and so I could have fun saying, the moving walkway is now ending. Please step down. <laughs> and they would be like, what, what? <laughs> so, so yeah, that's, that, that's kind of fun. But you got to say lots more than, you know, Fullerton is the, the next stop. How did yeah. you, I'm sure you've told this story a zillion times, but not everyone has heard it. How did it come to pass that you became the voice of the CTA? It was a little bit of a situation where I was in the right place at the right time. Uh, still had to audition, but how, the story is we had just gotten back from Disney World. Took my family down there, and there was an email in my uh, inbox that from my agent that said, uh, the CTA is looking for a voice for their trains, and uh, we'd like to have you audition. So I said, great, and then immediately panicked and went, what does a train voice sound like? <laughs> So I thought about it and went, well, I was just in Disney World and I just rode the monorail and they had a very friendly voice, uh, comforting voice on the monorail. I'll try doing that. 
And I just did my imitation of the guy on the monorail, sent it off uh, via FedEx because we were sending auditions on CDs in those days. Sent it to my agent who was in Chicago. I'm in Milwaukee. And uh, heard nothing. <laughs> just it was, it was like nothing. And then six months later, <laughs> I get a phone call from my agent going, um, the CTA just called and they want to hear a little more, but we think you got the gig. Wow. Well, what year was this? I'm just curious. When when was the this? audition was the audition was done in '97, and we started recording the announcements in '98. It's kind of interesting that you would say it takes six months to get back to you because it just goes to prove, and I'm sure you've heard this before, that nothing on the CTA moves all that quickly. Um, and, and I wouldn't nope. be surprised to hear if the if the process of recording didn't start and stop and start and stop and all of a sudden mysteriously stop for a really long time. That that would sort of track with everything else we know about riding the CTA. Uh, do you ride the CTA yourself when you're I've here? Only ridden it, I've only ridden it a couple of times. One of the reasons I don't is because I'm coming in from Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And I have to, when I come down, I have to be ready at a moment's notice to run to another studio that maybe is in Schaumburg ah. or or Wheaton or uh, Northbrook. And so I have to be in a car. Ah. To, and, and that has happened where I've been in downtown Chicago. And they said, can you be up in Northbrook in uh, an hour and a half? I'm like, yes, I can because I'm in my car. So, uh, But I have ridden, ridden the CTA uh, with my daughter. When she was little, she said, "Daddy, I want to hear my, I want to hear you on the CTA." And so we went on the red line and rode around for a while. And and what did she think of it? She thought it was cool. Oh, that's she, so good. You know, yeah, she was. It was like, wow, cool. You know. So how how old was she at the time? I'm, I have kids, so I'm, I want to know this because when we moved back to Chicago, and I'd been working by remote for another big radio station here in town for a while. And someone recognized me yeah. as a di- at a dinner party by my voice and my name and said, oh, you know, I listened to you. And my kid literally looked at her and said, I didn't think anybody listened to my mom. So, so, uh, how I think old she was, was around she? eight or nine. Oh, okay. The age when they do gotten, think you're cool. Good. The, Good. Yeah, yeah, the only age when they actually think you're cool. We uh, we had just gotten done uh, going to the American Girl store. Oh, and yeah. uh, so it was like, okay, what else can we do? And so that's what we did. D- does, do the kids tell people, my dad is the voice of the train? Because I would imagine that would be the interpretation, the voice of the train. Cut ahead to my daughter's 21st year. We are out in California, and we decided to go to wine country because she was legal now, and so we went to some wineries, and we were at one of the wineries, you know, going for a tasting, and everybody's introducing themselves, and the couple next to us says, oh, hi, yeah, we're from, we're from Chicago, and my daughter doesn't miss a beat because, you know, my dad is the voice of the CTA. Aww. That's pretty he cute. Went he went crazy. I had to pose for pictures, um, had to get an autograph or give an autograph. And so, it, yeah, they're, they'll use it when they need to. Ah, as kids will, as kids yeah. will. Um, what, what was the hardest uh, street? What were some of the harder street names for you? Not all, the hardest, but some of the, some of the tougher ones where you went, how, how is that pronounced? Yeah, I, 
the one that comes to mind, and I can't even remember what we did for it, is I don't remember how to say it. Uh, <laughs> it's Bobian, B E A U B I E N is one of the ones. Um, the the weird one was library because when we recorded it, you know, Harold Washington Library, and. By the time it got compressed down into the digital format that it needed to be, because space was at a premium at that point, it came out library. Oh no! And you could listen, yeah, and you could listen to the rec- original recording and hear library, but somehow the R went away. So we had to go in back, back in, record it, and say library. So we made it a four-syllable word, and then it turned into a three-syllable word when it was on the trains. I don't know why. I just say the words. There's probably some technician somewhere who could explain that, but I really don't want to hear from that person. So don't don't call and tell no. me why that happened. I don't care. <laughs> so when how often do you have to amend your work at a stop? The, the red line is expanding. You must be very excited about that. That's a whole other session or two. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> uh, we we do it about three. We do it about uh, three times a year. It works out, too. I mean, sometimes you've done six in a year, and then some years we've done one session. Uh, A lot of them are for the buses because the bus routes get changed much more often than the trains, obviously. When we do the trains, it's mostly because there's a station having construction and that's being avoided, or um, we had to do some... There's there's some bad stuff happening on trains, and so they had me do additional announcements saying something to the effect of you'll be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law oh, if great. you're assaulting people, you know. So, <laughs> oh, that's so, lovely. Which, which I ho- I'm hoping they don't use a whole lot, but. Uh, who decides? Does the end, does the uh, train driver say, you know, we need we need to play that one about assaulting people right now. This is not what w- this is not acceptable behavior. Let's hit that button and play the assault one. Or does it just play because it plays? No, I I, I honestly don't know the answer to that one. I would say it's probably the uh, conductor who makes that decision. Mm. But uh, I'm you're not, not sure. sure. I, I would love that. to give you like my my personal list of things. I'd love them to be able to play like for you to record. Like if, sure. you, if you think nobody knows that you're smoking pot right now, we can all smell you like these are some <laughs> announcements that I would like, you know, that this we is know what you're smoking. Right. There you go. Yeah. Could, could you do that one again? Just for the just for the books. We know what you're smoking. Oh, perfect. Oh, I, I want that in my phone so that I can just play that for people. And I'd like one that says, if we wanted to watch your soap opera, we would be watching your soap opera. Please turn it yes. down. I mean, yes. there are all kinds of things that you sort of wish you could get a third party voice involved in. Um, attention, pa- attention, passengers. Less drama, please. Yes, yeah. or attention passengers, don't make me call the cops. Things like that. Yeah. Sure, so sure. I'm sure there's a wish list that everybody sends to you. When you go into a session for the buses yeah. or the trains, uh, what are some of the more peculiar announcements? You've already mentioned, you know, this is a hazard. If you see something, report something. Uh, but what are some of the more quirky messages they've asked you to record? 
They really haven't asked me to do any quirky ones. I would love to, I wish I had a fun answer for you on that one, but they didn't really have anything quirky. It's, it's mostly, what we're trying to do is give a very friendly, faceless, benign reading of information so people can get where they need to go and do it in it in the least intrusive manner. That's that's sort of the goal. That's that's the mindset of what we're doing. And so we haven't really done anything quirky that I can remember. Ah, we've been doing it for twenty five years. So I'm, I'm going. I can't think of anything. Well, I I think that probably there's a an outtakes holiday reel somewhere of things that didn't quite go according to plan in the session. Is that is that true? It, there, uh, there may be a outtakes reel. I'm not uh, aware of one, but the engineer who did it for many, many years, I would not be surprised if he has one. <laughs> well, you know, those of us who grew up in Top 40 Radio are well familiar with the Casey Kasem, the dead dog, whatever yeah. that one was. Yeah. So I, I like to believe, and this is a little bit inside, so let me explain to people. Whenever people go sure. in to do one of these sessions, there's always a point where you just start falling over your tongue or something goes wrong or someone screws up. And you sound like a lovely, even-tempered guy. But I would believe that at a certain point, even you might sometimes get a little testy or frustrated or feel the need to lighten up the session with some uh, perhaps unorthodox humor. And and that's the kind of stuff that shows up in, in your holiday reel, typically, or the Casey Kasem, you know, why did you give me one about a dead, whatever it was that was dead. So... When typically when you go into a session now, the technology has changed. Do you come into Chicago to do those or do you do them from your studio at home now? I now do them from my studio at home. Uh, the pandemic definitely changed it. It was heading in that direction anyway. And then when the pandemic started and we had stuff we had to do, we had to get it on the trains, even though people are masking up on the trains and not riding the trains as much. We had to get some new announcements and some changes on the trains and buses. So it, they said, can you do it from home? I'm like, absolutely. And we've been doing it ever since. Well, that saves on gas for sure. Um, and it saves. I used to put 37,000 miles on my car driving from Milwaukee to Chicago all the time. And now I put on about eight. Wow. In a year. In a year. That's how much it's changed. You must really love Milwaukee. I have family here. Ah. You know, you're f- I'm 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 born and bred in Central Wisconsin. I'm I'm a, can I say I'm a Packers fan? Is that allowed? Yeah, this is not this is a political station. You can be a fan of oh. the Oakland Raiders for all I care. Um, oh no, no, not the Raiders. <laughs> <laughs> I think if you walked around in front of the studio with your cheese head on, you might get a different response here on the northwest side of Chicago. But it's safe to say it on the airwaves. So you're a Packers fan and you're not leaving and you're not crossing the state line except to take some of our uh, Illinois dollars back to Wisconsin. And bless your heart, you need it up there. So, But I, but I do pay my Illinois taxes. So well, that's important. That that is very important, and we. Th- I thank so, you for that. As someone who rides yes. the CTA, I especially thank you for that because that, that helps keep my keep my fares down. Um, you mentioned the pandemic. What were um, yes. some? I mean, were you at all worried about uh, cuts in service um, that would affect your bottom line in, in on in the pandemic if they were just. Taking things out of circulation, I guess you've been paid, but do you get residuals for the CTA? No, everybody thinks that everybody thinks I get paid 
by the announcement, which would be lovely, but uh, this is what's called an industrial contract, and so I get paid for the recording session, and it's a nice fee, but it's not exorbitant by any means, and that's it. I'm done. Yeah. So the, the actually in the pandemic, nothing really changed because we then had to do some announcements for, you know, keeping distance between people and please wear a mask and some of those announcements that were going on during the pandemic. Well, yeah, I, we're sag after here, so I'm glad you could explain that to people. If Speaking yeah. of explaining to people, um, if you could explain anything about your work to people, the, the things that people come up and ask you, what are the, some of the things that you wish that they knew about the work that you do or that you just get tired of telling them over and over and maybe you'd like to get it out of your system right here? That as a voice artist, you can make six figures working a day or two a week in your pajamas. <laughs> that is that is the myth. Really? Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh all the time, and we hear this. People who want to get into it, and they and they think of voice work as a side hustle. Oh dear! Well, I'm going to make a, I'm going to make a few extra dollars doing some voice work because I've heard, you know, and there and there's hucksters on the internet who are like, you know, make big money in your pajamas, talk for a living, I and mean, you know, it's, and it's it's way more complicated than that. Even though it's sound, you know, come on. Story. I mean, they, you know, they can do what you do. It's just talking, right? Uh, yeah, I get that all the time. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I've written whole articles about that. My my right. my favorite is I call it "I can fly the plane" syndrome. Um, okay. What is what is there really to flying the plane? You go up, you come down. I fly all the time for business. How hard can it be? Let me fly the plane. Um, sure, it's just steering. Yeah, it's just yeah. It's there's nothing to it, and I. I'm with you here. Um, when people, people, uh, I do very little voice work and people ask me and I say, well, cause it's really work. It's a career and I have a career and it's not doing voiceover work. I mean, I've done it. If people hear me and, but it's voice acting. It's not just read this. It's can you read this 17 different ways and make it sound right every way that you do it. And the people exactly. who really do it, are amazing. Thank God for the internet because now when people say, you know, they think they'd rather sort of like to to do a voiceover career uh, because people tell them they have such a nice voice. I now mm-hmm. have a standard email of six or seven people who are friends of mine who do this for a living and I send them the links to all of their websites and I say this is what it takes and if you can do this, great, God bless you. Um I I I get annoyed. <laughs> Sure. I, I, I don't blame you. I the same thing. I get annoyed. And I will tell you, because I don't think he's listening, and this has probably happened to you. Here's a guy. Yes. He's an Ivy League trained attorney. And he comes up to me at, I don't even remember the occasion, a gathering. I tend to avoid gatherings just because I'm, I like it in a soundproof booth with a microphone. That's fine for me. He comes up to me and he says, oh, he says, I'm doing voiceover work now. I have a friend with a store. We'll just say it sells teacups. And I, I did his commercial. So, you know, now I'm, I'm doing what you do. And I, yep. I, 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 I just thought, you know, the hubris of that, and I, something in me just snapped a little bit, and I said, you know, 
I read a lot of newspaper clippings, newspaper articles about legal cases, but nothing about reading about legal cases would possess me to walk up to you and tell you that I can practice law. What did he say? He got quiet. <laughs> he got quiet. And I thought, good, serves you right. Shut up. Yep. <laughs> That's my, I just, yep. I really, it is, it, it's, it's insulting because of course well, there's more to what you do. We'll talk about that a little bit. What, because People don't know. Talk about what it took to build a career doing what you do. What we did, I what, first thing I did was got coaching because I knew I I knew what I didn't know. So I went to I've worked, I've been with about four or five different coaches over the years. Mm-hmm. I still currently have one, and learned about the business. Learned what it takes. What do you have to do from a business standpoint? What do you have to be able to do? As an actor, mm-hmm. because there's commercials, there's narrations, there's audiobooks, mm-hmm. there's radio promos, there's TV promos, there's movie trailers, there's all these different areas you can do this in. And each one has a little bit of its own skill. You don't want to be doing an industrial on how to install a toilet in a really big voice for you that you would use for a commercial. You don't <laughs> want to do that. And, and I've heard that kind of thing. Uh, conversely, if you're doing a commercial, depending on what the product is, you want to make sure that you are appropriate for the product. So if it's uh, selling perfume, again, you don't want to do the big voice. You want to have something a little more intimate and a little more uh, classy. So these are all, and, and these are all things you learn simply by doing them. Yes, and, and it takes a long time, and it takes a lot of effort. And at the beginning, how many hours of auditioning would you say you put in for every gig you booked? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I think it's easier to—I don't know about hours, because uh, I tend to be a real stickler for how my auditions go out. And so I will work an audition—I will work one 30-second audition for an hour to get it right where I want it. But I would say my ratio of booking is mm, right now about 100 to 1. Wow. And and that's after all of the years and all of the, the knowledge and all of the training right. and all of having your name out there and agents who submit you. And still that's the ratio. That is really humbling to, to consider. And I would encourage anyone who wants to walk up to Lee at a party and say, all my friends have, say I have a great voice and uh, how do you do what you do? I, I would just, I mean, don't you just want to put a raw giant Idaho potato square into the mouth of everyone who ever says that to you? Well, I hadn't thought of potatoes, but now that you mention it, yes. Yeah. You just want to say, you know, (laughs) will you put a cork in it, please? But you don't get to say that because this is the Midwest and we have to be polite. And it's only people like me who spring a gasket once in a while and say it would never occur to me to assume I could be a lawyer just because I've read about a bunch of Donald Trump's legal troubles. Never would occur to me that now I'm an attorney. On the other hand. Exactly. Right. It's really amazing. People, hubris. Absolutely. And also, I think raising people to believe that what you see is all of what they're uh, all of what went into it. Um, where oh, sure. When we do when we do the CTA things, everybody thinks I said those those stop names once. 
we would work a stop. Any given stop, we would we do three times in different inflections. This is Fullerton. This is Fullerton. This is Fullerton. And then if the producer hasn't heard exactly what she thinks she wants to hear, we'll do another set. I mean, I've done dozens on one street just to get it where it really resonates. Wow. That... I- I am not surprised, but I will bet a lot of people are shocked to, to know this. What I would like to know is, do they ever just sort of change it up? Like, you know, going north, you're going to say it like this, and going south, you're going to say it like that? I don't know. I don't know. How, I actually don't know how they choose what the finals are. Um, I, I go into the studio. They record me. And then they choose the ones that they want. Now that we're recording at my home studio, I send them several takes and they take it from there. Yeah, that's typically how it works. I am Mm -hmm. so appreciative of the time that you have spent. Um, Is there anything else you wanted to tell us about the big achievement that you have all these years, all these years since 98, you said, been been, uh, speaking on behalf of and as the voice of the CTA, anything else we should know, pulling back the curtain just a little bit? I All that I can say is how grateful I am for having been asked by the CTA to do this and that I am honored that people enjoy what I do. I just got a question on the phone. I'm going to put somebody on the phone to you because this is an interesting question. Would you mind, Lee? Sure. Of Ron course. in Chicago. Um, you're on the air with Turi and with Lee Crooks, voice of the CTA. Yes. Uh, do uh, members of your profession feel threatened by uh, artificial intelligence? Absolutely. There you go. There's your answer, Ron. And and what what about the um, what about the the strike and the um, seeming accomplishment of uh, making sure that our voices cannot be cloned for AI? I breathed a sigh of relief when the strike was ended and they had put in place protections for the actors to prevent the studios from using AI representations of them and not compensating them. The fact that the union really stuck to it, I was very happy to see what they did. Because it, it, you're you're taking what a person is and just going, okay, well, I'm going to uh, just use what who you are, and uh, too bad if you don't get compensated. That's not that's not right. Yeah, I'm going to put you over here. I'm going to put you over here. I'm going to put you in this commercial and that commercial. It'll sound just like you and. Uh, yeah, it's happened, of course, in music radio. Um, I'm I'm glad I'm not in music radio anymore. Paid for my house, thank you. But um, it's really kind of interesting to, to to see what AI is going to be able to replace, how it could help, how it could not help. Um, I was just talking about this with a broadcast consultant who's got a book coming out, and so many radio stations have cut their personnel so that there's nobody in a station at night. So if there's really like a weather emergency, there's nobody in the studio to let the community know that there's some sort of uh, tornado or flood or train wreck. Um, and, and that's a place where if there's already nobody there, you know, at least people get out of harm's way. But um, 
you're absolutely right to take somebody's person personhood and just recreate it all over the place without compensating them is very scary. And the fact that the strike settled in favor of the actors bodes well for people who go in and do narration and and all of the things that you do. So, yeah, good for us and good for our union. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. There's there's the human connection. And AI hasn't quite – if you're just doling out information, that's one thing. If you are trying to connect with another human being, AI is not there yet. I think that's not in my opinion. Perfectly said. Absolutely perfectly said. And thank you for saying it so beautifully, so many ways. Lee Crooks, it's been a pleasure to have you on WCPT. I think in addition to having fun, uh, maybe people will stop coming up to you at parties and, and telling you they could do what you do. Lee Crooks, voice of your CTA on WCPT, Edwin Eisentrath Show, live, local, and progressive. I'm Tory Ryder in for Edwin. And uh, we will, in a moment, talk about the last protest that you went to. That's coming up right after the news on WCPT. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentrath on WCPT 820. It's four minutes after three o'clock. I am Tori with you, rider like the truck, in for Mr. Eisendrath, who will return next weekend, live, local, and progressive. Uh, if you want to find me outside of WCPT, where I show up as needed, you can find me through my podcast, my book, my audio book. Just spell my name and put in what you'd like. And there it will be, complete with a link so that you can have it. And thank you. <laughs> Thank you while I'm at it. Thank you for your texts and your and your calls and making me welcome this week on Jones Shift and Edwin's Shift too. When was the last protest you attended? And do you feel do you feel like your effort at protest makes a difference, made a difference? I am um, attended an interfaith march after the George Floyd murder. I uh, have attended some other small gatherings to make community voices heard. But in general, I don't do protests as they, I don't do, I don't do protests for lots of reasons. You may feel that showing up on the streets, uh, creating a disturbance, creating an uprising, a peaceful march, you may feel that this makes real change. I'm not so sure. And I'll tell you, last night at dinner, there was a big conversation about whose protests made a difference and how it makes a difference because... There was a contingent at this dinner who noted that the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade had been disrupted by a couple of dozen pro-Palestinian protesters stopped the Thanksgiving, the New York Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, and um, several had been arrested. And somebody else at the table said, I hope they keep it up. One person wanted it kept up because they were in favor of the protests. Another person hoped they kept it up because it made the cause look bad. In Chicago, 
on Black Friday yesterday, depending on which news outlet you paid attention to, there was either a peaceful march down the magnificent Miles Michigan Avenue, or there were merchants who were blocked from doing what one of the protest leaders called business as usual, that there would be no business as usual until there was, depending on what various factions in this march wanted, uh, from the river to the C-1 state or a ceasefire or a, whatever it was that various people wanted. Uh, until then, there would be marching and interference with business and that they were justified in doing this. Another person at the dinner reminded everyone of the early ACT UP AIDS activist protests. And and at one point, he reminded us of the way that the Golden Gate Bridge had been shut down for eight hours because the protesters handcuffed themselves inside iron um, pipes so that the only way to disconnect them was to saw carefully through the pipes so that they did not lose their limbs. They certainly made trouble. Did they make friends? That depends. I remember the, the, I was very young when the civil, um, sorry, the Equal Rights Amendment was up for passage in Illinois. And I remember the protests of ERA supporters and everybody had, you know, buttons, ERA now, pass ERA now. And in my opinion, of course, I was a big supporter as a child and as an adult and would have loved to have seen the ERA be passed. But it's clear to me one reason it didn't was the people who were lobbying it for it, lobbying for it to pass protested in exactly the wrong way. They went to Springfield and they threw blood at the downstate protesters. Pig's blood. They threw that at the downstate protesters, basically assaulted them. Meanwhile, the anti-ERA people, the Phyllis Schlafly's, were showing up at the downstate, down, I don't know if I can say this two times fast, downstate legislators' offices with homemade pies, saying, please vote down the Equal Rights Amendment so we can continue our blissful domestic lives baking pies for lovely men like you. Do you think that street protest helps or hurts? Do you think that oftentimes protesters just have no idea how their actions are affecting their cause? Do you think that people should give up their street protests? It really sort of, in my opinion... One of the main things that people should be aware of when they set up a protest is, you know, how do you want to be perceived? How do you want the cameras to show you on the Internet, on the news? What do you want to be seen to be doing? By the way. The disruptors of the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade apparently have not learned from from uh, the downstate Illinois effort to pass the ERA because one of the things that they did was spray fake blood on themselves and reportedly people around them. 
also they sort of muddied their cause with words like colonialism and consumerism. What consumerism, according to WABC, is what they had sprayed around. What consumerism has to do with the Israel, Gaza, Hamas um, mess uh, would be beyond me. So that's the other thing. Are you marching, you know, are, and, and that's the other thing that's difficult when you go to a protest. There are people with bullhorns that may be saying things you completely disagree with. I remember going to a pro-choice march in Portland many years ago. Because, you know, choice has been um, a, a hot issue for more, for many, many years. Long time. And I went to a pro-choice march in uh, Portland. And for the most part, the chants were about choice. But there were some people with bullhorns who had their own issues. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm marching behind someone who's advocating for an issue that I am completely on the, I'm completely on the opposite side of this issue. And it, it was mortifying for me. I didn't want anybody to think that that I felt that way about that issue. That wasn't why you go. You go for the issue that supposedly is is on the menu there. And here was somebody who decided that if you if you agreed with this cause, you must agree with some other cause. Which is enough to make somebody like me stay home. So, if you have been to a street protest ever, I would like to hear from you by text or by phone. What makes you go out into the street and and march? And and what do you think you really accomplish when you do? And does more go right or more go wrong for your cause when you do march in the street for it? According to um, the folks in Chicago who made it a point of disrupting what they called business as usual on Black Friday on Michigan Avenue. They're going to keep disrupting because in their cause, no business as usual until their goals are met, until their purpose is accomplished. And of course, the cynic in me goes, well, don't you have jobs? There is somebody in my family who had businesses in the South. These folks were, the people who owned the, the store were Jewish. I'm, I'm Jewish, so that's, that was the business in the South, was a store. And the, the civil rights movement was active around this store. But it was interesting because um, the story that came down through the generations to me was we we hired the clan so they wouldn't burn down our store because it was where they worked which i thought was fascinating uh and practical there's a practical solution do you deface a building where you work unclear Let's go to David in San Francisco. David, welcome. You're on WCPT. Hello. Well, hi. Yeah, I, uh, as a matter of fact, I went to a protest yesterday. Uh, it was in front of City Hall, and I was riding my bicycle up that way. And uh, along comes this uh, big Gaza support parade. 
and uh, you know plenty of Palestinian uh, uh, flags and you know support like that. But I and I uh, didn't join in. I uh, was on my way home. But I heard later that they went to uh, Union Square, which is kind of a fancy shopping area, and shut down. Um, you're probably familiar with Buy Nothing Day. Uh, yes, I, I'm, I'm also familiar with Union Square since I lived in the Bay Area in San Francisco proper for many, many years, and then in Oakland after that. Sure. So, yes, I'm familiar. So, they, so do you think this helped or hurt the cause? Well, it, um, it, 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 what's sad about it is, is that it, it makes uh, participants think it becomes bait and switch. And uh, I can remember another example, probably over 20 years ago. Uh, there was a, this is when uh, the wait, wait, before, before you move, up. before you move to your other example, what do you mean by bait and switch? Could you explain? Well, uh, you know, people will uh, come in to support Gaza, but they aren't there to support by nothing. Uh, it, it's a, uh, which may or may not be a good thing, but uh, uh, it, it looks like a bait and switch kind of protest. And, uh, you know, people have the opportunity or the right to join or, or participate or leave at their own will. Uh, but it's, um, uh, you know, it, it in, it makes it more difficult to get a get a crowd in the future if uh, if the organizers ostensibly start with one uh, you know advertised purpose and then uh, change the purpose at uh, the end. Yes, I see uh, what you mean. It, it, That's kind of a version of what happened to me when I went out to the pro-choice rally and ended up marching behind somebody with a with a megaphone who had. As it happened, uh, this was literally decades ago. And they were marching about Palestine. And I'm like, what the heck did that have to do with my pro-choice rally? There, How did I end up in that contingent? Absolutely. And um, right. so I, what was your other example, please? Well, there's the famous journalist, uh, Mamiya Abu-Jamal. And uh, he was uh, being put on the death row. I think his death sentence was scheduled, finally. This is back in the 90s. And, uh, and so there were great protests. People showed up like, you know, they supported him with uh, vigor. And there was uh, the protest was marching down Market Street, and, uh, and I was limping along behind. And across the street, they were probably two blocks ahead of me by that point, and uh, some uh, gang of thieves decided to hit a, um, uh, an electronics store, bust in the window. I think it was a radio shack. And they busted in the window and started climbing through the glass and stealing all sorts of stuff. Well, the cops were surrounding the Mumia parade. They were a block and a half, two blocks away from this break-in, an obvious break-in with, you know, the burglar alarm just blanging away. And they didn't come back to investigate a burglar alarm going off. And these guys were going in and out the window with all sorts of electronics, and the police did nothing to, uh, to protect it. Now, so, the day, uh, so the, what, wait, the wait, day wait, later, so what? Does that get interpreted later on the news as thugs are marching in this parade? Is that how that plays on the news the next day? Exactly. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so the Mumia, the Mumia march got accused of breaking the windows. And, uh, you know, it was a gang of thieves that did that. And who knows if the gang of thieves were in league with the cops? 
because, honest to God, the cops were dirty well, in the I, early I, 90s. I, I don't necessarily want to assume that, but we certainly, in Chicago, after the, the George Floyd murder, we saw uh, peaceful protest, and we saw organized gangs of people breaking in here to high-end clothing stores. And I'm not sure uh, that the general public understood that there was a difference between people who were legitimately protesting and people who wanted to load up a rental van with a, a trunk full of Louis Vuitton. Thank you very much, David. I appreciate your call. Let's go to Paul in Seattle. Welcome. You're on WCPT, Live Local Progressive. Hey, Terry. Um, I think in the last 25 years, uh, much like like David was describing, is that protests are co-opted by antagonists and interlopers uh, to end up being turned the, the cause being the results being turned against the cause. And you can talk about from I would say the first example that I can remember was, and you probably remember too, the WTO. Oh, in Seattle. Oh, my gosh. My husband was there, actually, um, for a a union meeting. Um, And, yeah, there was rioting. Why why don't you describe it? You're the Seattleite. Well, it was the World Trade Organization. There was the meeting at the convention center, and there was an an organized protest and permits. But these people come to... Speaking of your, your experience in, in, in Portland, Oregon, I presume. Yes. You know, you get the anarchists come up from there. They started breaking windows, and it was all out mayhem. And people just watching, or, or, who were not participating, who were just observing, were being uh, pepper sprayed by police, just sitting in their car. There were, there were videos of that, and that was a long time ago. So to have a cell phone video of that was kind of unusual. And your, your experience in Portland, there's always the right-wingers from you know, the provocateurs and interlopers from Eastern Oregon that come to Portland to get, get mixed up in any of that. Of course, the same has happened with Black Lives Matter protests up through and Kyle Rittenhouse deciding that he's going to insert himself from a whole state away and bring his weapons or have his mother, his mommy buy him some guns so that he can uh, go there and shoot people and then become a hero. So it always turns, it, it's in the last 25 years, I would say, the, the cause, uh, it, because of what happens, uh, I think they, the, the other side of it, or the right wing, sees it as an opportunity, you know, to to blame the cause, the the, the left wing cause that they must. Or, or let's um, be fair here, Paul. Or the left wing. I mean, that that, that yeah. also happens. Uh, and after all, um, there are there's plenty of extremist behavior. I'm going to flip the horrific expression of, of Donald Trump around here and say there are hideous people on both sides. Um, <laughs> there are there are violent, well, awful, there are, for sure. incendiary uh, uh, flamethrowers on both sides. And so um, it's interesting. I mean, I let a friend of mine who's a very um uh, Donald, he's a Donald Trump supporter. He's a, not a fan of vaccines, and that's putting it mildly. We are friends. We are grandfathered in. But somehow I get tarred and feathered with the people who riot anytime there is a protest that happens around a march or a cause that I support. You and your friends. like they, They're not my friends. Um, and it, it is enough to sort of make you stay home. Um, so now when people say, will you come to march? Will you come to stand with this group and stand with that group? This is so cynical. My, my response is, no, I'm going to talk about it on the air and, and I'm going to write a check. That's, that's well, what I'm going to do. That, that's, 
that's a better opportunity. But hey, Terry, I have a uh, a quick story about uh, the voice of the of the Metro Transit that you might enjoy. Please. Um, uh, so uh, it was twenty some years ago that I was riding the Seattle Metro from. I used to work in South Central Seattle, and then I'd take the 48 up up 23rd to the Mont Lake Change and uh, East Side Connections. And there was this guy, this driver that I would get um, on the 372 out to Woodenville, which is where, where I live. I lived at the time. Um, this guy had a very deep voice. And I would say, I finally said to him, you, you have a, you're a trained operatic bass or something, aren't you? And he said, and he laughed, and he said, well... I'm saying a little bit of a, I'm just, I'm a baritone, but I can't get anywhere. <laughs> He's, I'm saying a little, I'm saying a little everything. And then he said, well, you know, my work, this guy was, he said, I was the original Tony, the tiger. It was Dallas McKenna. Uh, he was the original Tony, the tiger. He, uh, retired and he died in Raymond, Washington, but he was born in Oregon, but, uh, he was a, but this guy had a voice that was just, it was a very – so I just thought – when you were talking to your guest, I thought, I, I have one of those. Re- resonant. <laughs> what a a resonant point. voice. I, it's funny um, that you should mention that. Um, I actually um, knew slightly, married to a friend of mine, the, the voice of the original Captain Crunch. And it's, it's kind of funny. You couldn't entertain children <laughs> oh, with that. It was it, You can't spend your whole life being Captain Crunch and making a living on it. But you, you can do it for a while, and it's always kind of fun. Um, and and kids are endlessly entertained when their Saturday morning cartoons, whether it's selling them something or just entertaining them, comes to life. Thanks so much. Appreciate the call, Paul. Sure. It is 25 minutes after 3 o'clock. I am Tori Ryder. When did you last go to a protest? And why do you go or why do you not go? And do you think it does any good? Are there actually politicians who can influence things, who look at these hundreds of people maybe breaking windows and think, yeah, they're going to block all the businesses on Michigan Avenue. That, that'll that help their cause. That'll work. Uh, no. 773-763-WCPT, live, local, and progressive. That's the number to text her to call with your thoughts on protests. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. It is not quite 3.30. At 3.30, we are going to be joined by my girlfriend, CJ, columnist retired from the Minneapolis Star and Tribune. I do want to get to some of your messages. And, and when and when CJ is live with me, not just yet, when she's live with me, we're going to do like our Joe Biden fan club because um, she and I agree that he's taking way too much excrement from people who really ought to appreciate what he's doing for the country instead of piling it up on his poor little aging head. This uh, this came in um, via the chat. Someone complaining about um, about my analogy that when people come up to me and say, oh, you know, I, I just got uh, asked to do my friend's commercials for his uh, for his copy shop. And I, I'm a voiceover artist now. And uh, my response, well, I've, I've read a lot of articles about uh, legal cases, but that doesn't make me a lawyer. This response came in. The more examples of how voiceover work is tough, the easier it sounds. <laughs> Say it three times, oh my. Except, of course, the 100 to 1 rejection rate. But that's because so many people can do it. 
Being a lawyer or doctor takes years of education and getting certified, etc. That's my point precisely. I realize you need to make it sound tough, but maybe come up with a different example. <laughs> like a doorman. They have to give a good greeting. Oh, read over and over whether they're in a good mood or not. That's not actually true. As you heard, um, it takes training. But the point isn't whether or not doctors and lawyers require a lot of expertise. The point is the arrogance of believing that what we do does not. Um, but I encourage you, if you think it's really easy, anyone, if you think that this gig is really easy, try paying your mortgage with it. There's the final. There, There's the final final. This guy has a friend who owns a store, and he did the commercials for his buddy. That's great. Now try paying your mortgage with it. And that's for the voiceover ambitious folks. And and for people who want to do talk radio, as Steve Dahl liked to say, and he said it on my podcast when he uh, was on with me, um, great, see you Monday. Now we'll see you Tuesday. Coming in on Wednesday, see you then. Thursday, Friday, yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody's got a few things they can talk about for a little while. The exception would be my girlfriend, CJ, um, Cheryl Johnson, by full name, retired columnist and gadfly in the Twin Cities. So glad to have you back, CJ. Yes, how are you doing? I'm holding up reasonably well. How was your holiday? You know, I don't pay very much attention at the time of year. Oh, I like to joke, you know, we, we Jews don't really get into this. I'm a Presbyterian, but I just, I was just thrilled yesterday that I didn't have to buy a single darn gift. I stopped buying gifts, I don't know, a good 10 years ago. My rule with my nieces and uh, nephews is when I see you, I'm going to give you some money. If you make the effort to see me, I'm going to give you some money. You know, that, you don't I make like an effort that. to see me, I don't have any money for you. That that is a, an approach that I think would would work well um, for some kids and other kids. I, I think that sorts them out pretty clearly, pretty well. Yeah. The sorting. Yeah. Speaking yeah. of giving people I money, give my, I give my mother some money. That's the only the only person I feel obligated to help out at Christmas is my mother, so she can you know. Enjoy you know, herself. Do whatever she wants to do with her money, but yeah. I don't. I don't. I just. I just don't care. I, it's too. It's, it, it's too commercial for me. It's really. It's too. It's too much. The idea that you would get out of your bed the morning after Thanksgiving to go shopping at six o'clock. I think that's insane. <laughs> I did it, I, and I'm not doing it. I know you know from my book. I did it once, <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. and it's an experience. Yeah. I, I, yeah, it's good. I, I've never done that. But I used to. I used to be real caught up in the whole Christmas thing and all that stuff. And, it, and I also don't like feeling pressure, mm. unnecessary pressure. And that's what. That's all it does. I, I used to have a rule. Uh, still have this rule. Uh, but no, I don't have this rule anymore. I only between Thanksgiving and Christmas. I only went to the Mall of America when it was work related. <laughs> That's a good rule. I, I avoid those places like like the plague. I really, I, I'm sure that there are people with stores who are just jumping up and down like Rumpelstiltskin right now. But you know me; they're going to write on my tomb. She never paid retail, and if possible, it comes to me secondhand. And and my rule about buying people stuff that's vintage or thrifted or secondhand is, you know, no matter how long you've had it sitting in your closet or on your shelf, it doesn't get any 
any more vintage or secondhand until it becomes antique, and then it's even more valuable. So, so that's how we do it. So yeah, that's how I, roll too. <laughs> I sat around, well, you make stuff, so that kind of helps too. But you, I sat around yeah. enough gatherings and heard enough people bashing my guy, Joe, Joe Biden. I'm just, I needed, I needed some, some, a, a fellow supporter here. So I asked you yeah. to join me today to just sort of remind people of what our president has actually managed to accomplish in less than four years and how that this whole idea that, you know, we should not be supporting him because he's elderly is, is insane. So you want to start with your list of great things that he's done? Well, I, the thing, um, you're better with, with the list than I am, but the thing is, is I don't understand, is why isn't Joe Biden getting all that Bernie Sanders love? You know, I used to tease my kid friends, you know, my friends who are in like their 30s, about being so crazy about Bernie Sanders. And I would say... Didn't you have a grandpa? What, 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 why are you so crazy? Did you completely miss that face? Am I the only person who had grandpa on both sides of my family? And uh, Evan Kale, who's uh, Twitter's uh, TikTok pawn man, he used to always get a huge chuckle out of this. We used to have some great debates about this. And I, I just was mystified by that. So why, if they didn't, if people didn't have a problem with Bernie Sanders, do they have a problem with Joe Biden? I, I cannot. I cannot explain it other than the fact that Bernie Sanders has a New York accent, which people find entertaining, and a bad haircut, and 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 makes more noise. But really, Joe Biden makes more sense and speaks more quietly. And and you have to sort yeah. of lean forward to listen. But when you do lean forward to listen, Joe Biden makes more sense. Right. He's going to say something that makes absolute sense. And his people, they've got to, yeah, nobody was really paying attention. You know, now that we're less than, you know, 360 days away from it. Okay, now we're going to focus on it. But Joe Biden's people need to be stringing together a TV commercial based on what's been said by John Kelly, Chris Christie, John Bolton, Bill Barr, Cassidy Hutchinson, because all of those people are telling you what trouble the democracy will be in if the former guy, Yes. And and they're making it very clear. And and the other thing is, while we're on the subject of stringing bits together, the Republicans for ages have been, you know, showing Joe Biden tripping on things or tripping on his own tongue, which, of course, he's done his entire career, including when he was very young because he overcame a stutter. Um, So that's that's not new. That's not aging. But there will be a massive compilation of Donald Trump sounding like he's completely out of his gourd. Um, but the weird part about that is I think that's why people like him. It's like we're it's like network only for a fascist. <laughs> I'm going to say any crazy <laughs> thing that comes into my head and have a meltdown in public. And you're going to vote for me because watching somebody have a meltdown in public is in some weird way attractive. Uh, yeah, well, he's clearly having some uh, cognitive slippage there, shall we say. Now, when um, when, no, no, when Trump ahead. has cognitive slippage, does he get more vicious or less vicious? He's going to become more vicious because what happens when, when uh, people slide into that is that whatever your previous personality is, it just becomes accentuated and, and highlighted. So he's going to become even more off the rails than he has been. 
Well, that's what's going to happen when that, people go into the decline. I think he's 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 way he's halfway down that water slide right now, in my opinion. He's oh, and to make matters worse, he's angry, which I believe speeds up the process of mental deterioration. But it's amazing to me how the Republican Party seems to have a major campaign strategy of just losing your cool and challenging people to crazy fights and and going off on people in really insane ways. And meanwhile, the Democratic Party, in the form of Joe Biden, is cool, collected, directed, uh, on task. Uh, And for some reason, people interpret this as being less effective. How 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 are they even making that calculation? Because we've just uh, lost our uh, um, direction. Um, I, I have Republican friends who don't think anybody should vote for any more Republicans until they stop acting like this is a theocracy and 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 that the, 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 until they come back upon the rails. I mean, I actually have Republican friends who think like they gotta go. You know, you know, my Republican friends they say they, they, don't, they don't care who you sleep with. They don't care if you if you if if you need to do, how, what you do with your body, you know people people want to want to legislate whether you can wear a helmet, <laughs> and and that's okay. But but other things, oh no 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 no. You you women should women should. I have a theory about this uh, this um, the the, um, the the fall of uh, Roe v. Wade, and the theory is that. I have a bunch of ridiculous theories. And this may be one I love of your ridiculous theories. Wait, wait. Why do you think I asked you here if it's not for your ridiculous <laughs> theories? I believe that they uh, uh, want an underclass of people. We always want people who will do who, who are there to do work for less than minimum wage. And I think it's the it's, so. And if you if you force women who can't afford to have children to have more children, most of them are not going to become millionaires. They're going to become uh, people who have who do with poverty. So and I think that I think that's the master plan. They always want these people. They always want people who are who are oppressed. Huh. And I don't want that. I want I want everyone to do well. I want everyone to be able to, to make their own decision. I want everybody to be able to prosper. And everybody can't prosper. And some people may have problems that stop them. But I do think that some people from some, I'm almost, some, I do think that some people like the, the idea that there will always be an underclass, the little people. Yes. Well, I really believe that. Absolutely. And I think, I'm sorry to report that there are people like that sometimes on both sides of the aisle. But on the Republican side of the aisle, um, they're, they're going to implement a plan to make sure that there are people who are permanently poor and desperate and willing to take any job they want to hand out by forcing those people to have to have children that they don't want to have. Meanwhile, let's talk a little bit about how you think our president came out uh, after the automotive strike, because we had the other guy from the other party, the likely nominee of, of the of the other party, <laughs> sh- showing up and saying that everybody's job is going to move to China. Meanwhile, the auto workers got the best deal that they've gotten in decades and throughout a corrupt uh, union leadership uh, before they got that done. And and there was Biden in a on the picket lines 
visibly supporting the union. There are uh, they lost those people um, in Wisconsin and Michigan before. Do you think that this will be enough to get back those uh, male, white, working class uh, folks that that defected to you know who last time? I don't know. Those people seem to be in some kind of trance. <laughs> and I just don't know. I don't know what can get them out of it. I They're just, I, I, there isn't, if you listen to what uh, he, he says, if you listen to what Mary Trump's uncle says, <laughs> then, <laughs> I hate to say his name. I know. Then, then you can't, you can't really, he does not care about people. It is so obvious he does not care about people. And it is so obvious that if he becomes president again, he's going to spend all his time getting even with people. That's not what you should do. Who, I want to know who he helped with the last time he was in office. Uh, my, my 401k. He, he, you know, everybody says, oh, my 401k did so much better. My 401k, okay, he didn't do any better than it did under Obama. <laughs> It's really interesting to see, um, I mean, the people who you would expect to support him, the, the bazillionaires, w- one of whom, a uh, big supporter, is um, owner of a large media company based just down the road from you, who served as his campaign uh, chair, I guess was the title. Um, and you know how he helped them. But it is a mystery to me, and we've discussed it, how the guy with the strange orange hair uh, helped the, the people who really went into the voting booths and got him elected. I, I don't get it. Um, even in... I mean, even the the virulent Supreme Court stackers um, had to have had some idea that he wasn't really going. I mean, now they've got what they wanted. Now they can vote about other stuff, but they still seem wedded to him. And, you know, loyalty is is an attribute that I wouldn't have necessarily tacked on to the Supreme Court stackers. They certainly weren't loyal (laughs) to people who were morally towing their moral line when they went for Donald Trump. Oops, I said it. Uh, They just wanted their Supreme Court stacked. So if they were not loyal to people who towed their moral line to get the Supreme Court stacked, why can't they be disloyal to him now and come back to the party that actually serves the majority of their needs? Like maybe their actual health care. I I don't know. Explanation? Theory? Anything? Uh, The Supreme Court is uh, lost its way. Um, But, you know, you, you put the, you know. The, the whole uh, Clarence Thomas situation. I mean, there's no way in the world if he was uh, some. Uh, I don't know why he, how he can get away with taking money from people who are doing business with the court. I, it's I, beyond me. I don't know. But this man, this man, he, he has been an embarrassment and a shame since the need to heal. Well, you know, we go way back with him. Well, interestingly, uh, somebody at the table last night uh, mentioned that that if I was annoyed by the Anita Hill thing, which I truly was, I should still be hanging that on our current president. And I said, don't you believe that people can can learn and, and improve and experience things beyond where they started out? I mean, if if the president's initial experience 
was only with people from his cultural and social and racial and gender milieu, it's understandable that he behaved the way he behaved. But he he learned and improved and expanded. And I have no need to continue being angry about the things he did 40 years ago. It's that I can let that go in light of the fact that he has so improved. I would still be angry if he were stuck where he had started out, but that's not the case. Right. So... Didn't he, didn't he apologize to her? Well, didn't you know, they, didn't they have... I hate to say this, but the last I heard when she was a professor at Brandeis, um, she pointed out that although he had said publicly that he regretted his behavior, he had never personally apologized to her. And I think that he should. And I, I don't know if he has I think since he should. then. I thought, I, thought he, I thought he had done something, beyond, but I could, I could be wrong. Uh, he has evolved, thank goodness. Yes, but I, I thought that he. I'd, uh, I, I'm not suggesting that that or that the Joe Biden is uh, is perfect by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, I think that he's given. I, well, uh, I, I don't. I don't agree with everything that he's done, but he's interested in a democracy. <laughs> yeah, if he if, supports a democracy, he's not. He's not interested. And I don't know what's going on with black folks who are, uh, as I said the other day, you know, um, um, black person who would vote for Mary Trump's uncle is like a chicken who would support Colonel Sanders. I mean, give me a break. How do you, 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 how do you he, he, Mary Trump's uncle doesn't mean anybody who looks like me any good. And for all of the people who are following him right now, and thinking, oh, I like him. He, he's so he's so out there, and he just says what's on his mind, and he's going to get the people who need to be gotten. Eventually, he's going to ask you to do something that goes against your moral fiber. Well, I can't believe and, that he hasn't asked every single person to go to do something. I mean, the mere act of voting for him is, is voting against most people's moral fiber. I mean, if you if if. If if your moral fiber consists of something that allows you to vote for, as you put it so beautifully, Mary Trump's uncle, then your moral fiber is saran wrap. <laughs> Nothing to it. See right through it. Yeah, so, I, yeah. I've got, I've, got, I've got friends who voted for him to whom I'm still not speaking. Ooh, okay. Ooh. Uh, the ones who got over him. And say and say, okay, I, 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 I'm, I see this is a problem here. I, I, now I'm following it. I'm following it. I'm, I'm back on speaking terms with those. But I've got a couple friends. I guess more than a couple who uh, were friends, friends of his. And I had told them, I said, you know, you know, I can't do this. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to. Well, I really do have lots of Republican friends. I used to, my ex husband. Was uh, we were yeah, had a discussion one day, and and he said to me, "I don't think I have any Republican friends." And I go, "Yeah, you do." <laughs> and he says, "Oh," and I said, "Well, this friend of mine and this friend of mine." He just told me a Republican. I guess they are reasonable Republicans, however. <laughs> yeah, I, I had fun at our wedding pointing out to my uh, now spouse of nearly thirty years all the Republicans who were there. He's like, "Really?" Like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they're my friends. They're my friends and they're going to keep showing up. That's right. So, so let's talk about 
the the fact that people seem to have a weird sort of amnesia about what Joe Biden has actually accomplished for them. All of the green energy support, all of the electric vehicle support, all of the union support, all of the health care support, all of the support for um, choice, if nothing else. I mean, women's bodies would not belong to them. His efforts at, uh, at at getting some kind of sane, but before Nan- Nancy left her job, some kind of sane uh, weaponry control in there. Right. All of the things that he's represented and, and advocated for, and even in places, this is always a mystery to me. People go, well, why hasn't he done X or Y or Z? Why hasn't he spent this money? And they seem to have a fundamental unaware a lack of awareness of, of who actually gets to spend the money that that's not his job he can't do that he can't just fund things they, they maybe we just need to send people back to um schoolhouse they rock they don't teach they don't teach they don't teach they don't teach history anymore which is why young people on tiktok thought that the things that osama bin laden were said was cute were cute um, we, we don't, we don't, uh, the, 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 the problem with many of our problems is the, the shortcoming in the, in the American education system, as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yes. I think that's the word. But we, but we don't want certain things taught there. But uh, Biden has, uh, he's got to get better at, um, getting somebody to tout his accomplishments. If he doesn't, if he doesn't want to do it, and did, and to communicate it in a much better way, and that person can't be David Axelrod as good a communicator as he is because he's clearly not Team Biden. No, I don't <laughs> know what he's doing. I, I think he's lost his what? mind, or somehow somebody on the other side has 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 co opted his uh, moral center. How much good is Kamala going to be to Joe Biden in this next cycle, in your view? You know what? I'm not a Kamala hater. I'm not a Kamala hater. And I think she's a very smart woman. She's the vice president. She's not supposed to be out there. She's supposed to be behind them. She's, and she stays behind. And she's in the background for the most part. But I tell people, and I just the other day, I had to tell somebody this. I said, uh, and this person didn't even know this. I said, they said, oh, I'm just not impressed with this is a black woman older black woman. I'm not impressed with Kamala Harris. I said, what's not to be impressed? Oh, she just doesn't say anything. I said, Google Jeff Sessions Kamala Harris. I said, and watch her interrogate him um, when she was on the Senate. And then, and I said, and then Google Kamala Harris Brett, um, uh, 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 Kavanaugh. Was it Kavanaugh? Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh. I said, Google them. Watch what she says to them. I said, she is right now, it's her job to keep her bushel under a light. I mean, keep, 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 keep her under a bushel. I got it. That's her job right now. She's not supposed to be, uh, So I think I think the opposite thing is going to happen. And I'd like to I'd like to see her out there more because I think she can speak to a lot of people who I think she can speak to younger people very well. And I think she can speak to a lot of these people who are upset about uh, Joe Biden in the Middle East. I think she can speak well to them. Uh, And and I'm hoping that she will be uh, our beloved president's 
uh, best secret weapon. And and I hope when, when you say that someone needs to get out there and start touting his accomplishments, I think we need more than one someone, and one of them should be her. I think she does it well. Oh, yeah. yeah, she's well. I think she's already there. And she, she has said we need to earn people's votes. So she knows that there's there's a problem. Yeah. And uh, but but I but I don't I don't know who these black people are who think, oh, I'm just, I'm not going to vote for, for Biden this time. And I think, really, are you voting for slavery? Would you like, would you like to, how, how many steps back do you want to take, buddy? You know, because, because, because uh, Mary Trump's uncle doesn't mean you any good. He doesn't want, he doesn't want you to prosper. Well, I, I was going to ask you, uh, although he's out of the race now, about Senator Scott. What's your, speaking of black people who are sticking up for, for, <laughs> What do you make he, of him? He, he just, uh, Tim Scott's just there to make white folks feel comfortable about everything awful that America has ever done to oh black God. people. Oh <laughs> That's his job. He, he, is, he is, oh, slavery wasn't that bad. Oh, my God. Oh, my Lord. <laughs> I, I, thought, I, I, loved, I loved finally seeing, oh, and I forgot her name already. I remember her name. It went in my, in my head. And I, I was the girlfriend, Tiffany. What's the girlfriend's name? Oh, where he showed off the girlfriend at a press conference? Yeah. yeah. I don't know her name. I, I, I didn't even bother to learn it because I knew he was going to be gone any second. So I didn't bother with him or well, his no, girlfriend. No, 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 you know, because that was not really his girlfriend. That's what you know. I I, I would have more chemistry with um, any cat you got out of the Humane Society. <laughs> and I would have more chemistry than he had with that woman. Oh my God! He I'm had, on the floor was, now. No, I am on the floor there was now. No energy. There was no energy between them. There was no connection. And she has never kissed that man. Do you hear me? Ever? <laughs> oh man! And I thought, and she, and she was just kind of standing there, and I'm thinking, oh my God! I would, I was, I was standing, and I was really watching the TV and saying, I would love to see her W two form. Because I know there's a little bump in it because she's on the payroll. Oh man, that's not a girl. Oh I'm not I'm not suggesting that he's hiring her for sex because there's no sex going on. Okay, <laughs> this is a business transaction. You tra- transaction. You're going to make some appearances with me, and I'm going to pay you to make these appearances. All right. Okay. That woman. They, they, first off, she was too good looking. No woman who looks that good paying attention to Tim Scott. Oh, no, 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 CJ, CJ, I I beg to differ with that. And I cite as evidence Henry Kissinger. Henry Kissinger (laughs) married a model. There is something very sexy to some women. No, 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 no. Yes, yes, he's not a model. No, I'm just saying that the fact that somebody looks like a pile of wet rags does not necessarily mean that really good looking women will not find him attractive uh, because okay. power is an aphrodisiac. And my second case in point is Jerry Hall, who is now desperately in love, if you can possibly believe this, with uh, is it Rupert Murdoch or some whichever one of those nonagenarians that she now calls. Uh, they're, 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 they, they, they're they divorced. He divorced her. What? When? Rupert, Rupert and Jerry Hall aren't together anymore. As of when? Mm, I don't know, but Google it. I think it, All right. Ask him okay, no, Google I believe you. They're not together anymore. Yeah, but Tim, he, Tim he didn't. Wait, wait, wait. Power may be an aphrodisiac. Uh, oh, and Henry Kissinger's wife, uh, Nancy, was an attractive woman. 
She wasn't a knockout like Tiffany. He needed Tim Scott. They don't even know how to pick a woman for Tim Scott. I could pick a woman for Tim Scott. I could pick a woman who would be believable as a date for Tim Scott. Well, this woman wasn't believable. There's a job. Yeah, I, 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 if you just give me, I'll just give me, give me some pictures, send me over some pictures from Central Casting, and I go, no, 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 maybe, no, no. <laughs> she this woman was so, Tim Scott has never dated a woman who looked that good. Tim, Tim Scott has been, he's, how long has he been on this planet? Is, is he, is he 53, 55 years old? He has never been able to find anybody to marry him. Okay? So suddenly, in the last three years, he finds this woman? No. no. <laughs> so are are you saying that it's it's women who will date him or women as a group all together? Where are you going with this? Uh Decl- Don't make me choose. Decline uh, to <laughs> Are you going to say decline to state? Is that going to be your uh, um, party on I'm, this one? I'm just I'm just going to say that I would I would bet a thousand dollars that this woman was not ever an actual girlfriend of Tim Scott's. Okay, I'm going with that. I'm, 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 I will be with and, you. And, and I, can, I can have aspersions on our sex all the time. I mean, one of my favorite conversations too. I was visiting with, uh, with a, a a young man, friend of mine, uh, his, and his kids. Uh, and I said to him, I said, "Look, he's a really good-looking kid. And he see his head is on level and everything." And I said to him, I said. Remember, never trust the woman when she says, I've got the birth control. You be in charge of your own birth control. I think we're going to leave it there, CJ. I thank you so much and and all of your your good observations. Coming up next, collaboration on WCPT, Edwin Eisendrath's show. Thank you for keeping me company these last few days. I'm Tori Ryder, and I'll see you next time I come in and hang out at Chicago's Progressive Talk.